we perform it at Bombed Out Church. That explains all the dead sailors frolicking about. I broke my mouth. No special equipment required. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that looks like a cross between a Vogue fashion plate and a case of dynamite. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Some do crazy things all their lives. Well, that's the hope. Right. Yeah. You know, we've really doubled down on this whole being married to each other thing. Yeah. Which is crazy. It is pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Other people don't do that. No, that's true. They get their starter husbands and their trophy wives and their you know sister wives (laughs) mix and match the duggars and whatnot yeah i don't know i'm I'm not sure where they come into it but uh yeah oh i know where they come into (laughs) all right then uh that was gross yeah i'm sorry well we're gross sometimes we are pretty gross sometimes some do gross things all their lives (laughs) we definitely have that on lock (laughs) welcome back cousins it is time to recap downton abbey series five episode six uh we're way over the hump we're almost to the end of this season yeah things are uh chugging along nicely they are we're very pleased with where we're at yeah agreed uh but before we get into the recap it is of course time to name our cousin of the week yeah Cousin Vera writes, hello, Kelly and Tom. First of all, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that this gift reaches you. I don't really get our postal system. It's kind of tricky. I thought I'd also send some finished sweets, Phaser's blue chocolate and some Salmiaki licorice-ish candy. I don't think these are sold anywhere else than Finland. My high school history courses don't really talk about the start of the 20th century, so I'm enormously thankful to Tom Repeats History slash Fashion Backwards segments for all of the really cool information. I listen to your podcast first thing in the morning. It wakes up and prevents me from having a shitty day. You make me laugh like crazy in public, and it gets funnier when you see people's confused faces. (laughs) Cousin Vera. P.S. Kelly's impersonation of McGee gives me life. (laughs) Well, thank you, Cousin Vera. Very exciting to hear from you. So Cousin Vera is uh, one of our listeners in Finland, as you may have gathered. Right. And uh, this particular telegram was sent by postal service yeah on some actual paper right and for that effort alone <laughs> uh we felt that we had to uh elevate this to cousin of the week levels yes but and we, to the fine penmanship oh my god this displays. is unlined paper yeah and just it's beautiful yeah just very neat cursive mm-hmm. all evenly spaced yeah with no lines as guides like it's great it's i could not match it myself no. i mean that was really the first thing tom commented on when i brought this home uh yeah and and we are really excited about the sweets mm-hmm. uh we're probably going to serve them at our upcoming valentine's day party yeah uh and see what our friends think mm-hmm and uh we also and if they res- like them they can't get any more no they can't. <laughs> uh and vera also sent us a really great uh ice cube tray uh gin and titanic which right. are ice cube shaped like the titanic <laughs> and the iceberg right uh all done up in a very nice blood and steel blue <laughs> so thank you for that cousin vera uh we also want to shout out uh some other cousins who sent holiday gifts right and we just haven't had time slash forgot <laughs> yeah, uh, right. to say thank you but we want to say thanks to cousins Alyssa, lori miranda and hannah mm-hmm. for the excellent gifts you sent yes uh especially cousin lori for sending the book into the forest which is a harrowing and <laughs> uh 
post-apocalyptic novel that I really loved. Right. Uh, also being adapted for film starring Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood coming oh, wow. up soon. Yeah. Very Damn. exciting. And also Cousin Hannah who sent a Downton Abbey puzzle which is about 80% done sitting next to us currently right now. Right. Well, uh, it's about 80% in area but the rest is the sky. So like in terms of effort still probably only like you know half two thirds that's fair we've done our usual division of labor on this puzzle which is tom doing the puzzle and me being angry at the puzzle for not already being done because i uh i love the idea of a puzzle but when it comes time to actually do the puzzle i just get real mad you do it's i've you know that's fine i mean and luckily you've worked on it when i've been not home which has been a lot (laughs) right tom's married to the puzzle now (laughs) It understands me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, if you would like to send us a telegram, you can write to us. We're upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a tweet, a.k.a. Carrier Pigeon. We're at 5 Maggie Smiths. That's at 5, the number 5 Maggie Smiths. Mm -hmm. Or you can just search Up Yours Downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. And I think that's all of the housekeeping notes. I think you're right. Let's get into this business. (laughs) Okay. As a downstairs mostly tells Hughes that there is a telegram for Lady Edith, which causes Hughes to look troubled um, and also causes me to realize, hey, why do we not get to see the messenger boy biking up to Downton? I think that's just the first episode. I guess so. And also, I mean, but we do get the tracking shot that starts right now. We do. We follow mostly giving the telegram to Carson, who in turn gives it to Edith at the breakfast table. Uh, she opens up and reads the telegram and has the same reaction she has to everything she ever reads. Basically, which is, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, they should really just stop delivering her mail. She would yeah. probably be happier. Honestly, yeah. No. McGee's having breakfast in bed when Lord Grantham walks in and he says he's sorry to disturb her. And she says, don't be silly. Once Baxter leaves, Lord Grantham starts apologizing again while avoiding eye contact. Yeah. And McGee is like, quit being ridiculous. Just move back in. So clearly, Brickergate, as far as Lord Grantham is concerned, not over. Right. Lord Grantham tells her that Edith is about to receive some bad news from her editor, presumably to say that old what's-his-name is dead. Yes. As I was writing this recap, I could not remember his name. It's I remember. Yeah, I remembered it later. Yeah. So that got added Man, in. Man, and I miss that dude. Yeah. He was a lot of fun. He was. And you remember when he saved Lord Grantham from financial ruin? Like, honestly, he's the most heroic person that's ever been in this series. And that includes, like, William Mason dying to save old Matthew Crawley. Right. Who just wasted it by dying anyway. Good point. Mm Mm-hmm. Way to go, Matthew. Boo. (laughs) Downstairs, Carson, Hughes, and Anna discuss the impending bad news. Hughes tells Anna to warn Madge, which makes me wonder why not Madge could be in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, honestly, have you ever seen <laughs> Madge? Right? I no. Mean, she's- Look, here's what I know. There is an actress who plays Madge. Right. So she's presumably been on screen. She has- There was an interview with her in her hometown newspaper <laughs> that I found one time. Right. But, like, I don't understand why Madge can't be a character. Absolutely. Like, Baxter's a character. Well, especially with all that's going on with Edith. Mm-hmm. Like, does she discuss this with Madge at all? What is Yeah, Madge? we don't get a lot of insight into Edith's inner life, which right. may be in part why we give her such a hard time. Yeah, that's possible. We never really get to see her discussing her innermost feelings and thoughts. Yeah. 
so then Pat Moore comes along and asks Hughes if she is ready for tomorrow and explains to Carson that Hughes is coming with Pat Moore tomorrow to take a last look at the cottage that Pat Moore is considering buying. Pat Moore and Anna go about their business, and Carson asks Hughes about this cottage. She says, I haven't seen it yet, I don't know, and asks if Carson wants to come with them. He says that Pat Moore wouldn't want him there, but Hughes says that she would and thinks this is a chance to bury the memorial business. Maybe a poor choice of that words. That is a really poor choice of words. <laughs> and Carson says, okay, but only if Pat Moore really uh, definitely wants Hey, 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 Carson, why don't you just pass Mrs. Pat Moore a note that says, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> like, God, this is so juvenile. I considered that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't decide who would deliver it. <laughs> Mosley's very incompetent. <laughs> Anna's upstairs doing Mary's hair, and Mary says it's horrible, uh, presumably about this business with Gregson, right. but what did she think? That he was living in a tree? <laughs> Which is insensitive even for Mary. True. Like, honestly, this episode, she kind of crosses the line from being delightfully cruel <laughs> to being just a straight-up C-word. Yeah. Like, She's, uh... and for no reason, like, everything's going great for her. Yeah. But well, maybe that's how she expresses joy? Partly. I mean, I think, you know, her point of view is things are going great for her, and Edith is once again trying to be bring everybody down over a fact that they have already dealt with, all the rest of them. So that's Which her feeling. Which is true, but, but like, you know... Yeah, that said, still... Edith's trying to bring them all down regardless. <laughs> right. Like, it has nothing to do with this particular instance, yeah. you know? Edith has terminal bummer syndrome. Right. And there's nothing to be done about it. Yeah. Clarkson's like taking a look at it. He's like, I'm sorry. Science just isn't there. (laughs) Uh, Anna agrees with us and says not to make jokes. But Mary says only in here and promises that she will be sorry. Says she that that she really is sorry that he's dead. Although she can't imagine what Gregson saw in Edith. Yeah. That's the part where I was like, wow, that was gratuitous. I mean, maybe you want to feel like Edith should get over it, but like, what? Come on. Like, who cares? Yeah. He's going to take her off your hands. Yeah. Plus he's dead now. Yeah. (laughs) Boy, I wonder if old Anthony Strallen is still tooling around somewhere, (laughs) biding his time with his like weird arm. Yeah. Dropping books and whatnot. I just picture him doing that. I don't know if he ever did. I'm just envisioning him. My grandma used to have one of those like grabber sticks. (laughs) But they probably don't even have the technology for that at this point. He's just got a complicated series of levers (laughs) all around his house. Uh, So anyway, she's not sorry. Clearly. In more important news... The York and Ainsty are holding a point-to-point featuring Blake and Gilly. What the fuck is a point-to-point? I've watched this whole episode, and I don't know what it is, except that everybody seemed to think, was this like the Formula One racing (laughs) of the northern countryside? My understanding is that it's a horse race, but like uh, uh, not on a race course per se, just like out in a field somewhere. So it's like cross-country running? Yeah, essentially. That's I meant to look it up to be more specific, but then I didn't do that. Uh, anyway, Anna says that she didn't think that they were eligible. I don't know what that means. Yeah, because it was like only actual members of the York and Ainsty are allowed to ride in it, but somehow they... Well, the York and Ainsty does not sound super appealing. <laughs> like, Ainsty? That sounds like your, like, hillbilly second cousin. Like, no, like, you're, like, that's like your pet name for your aunt. Right. Oh, Ainsty's here. Better hide the moonshine. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's from an old Saxon word meaning cousin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cousins. From now on, you will be forthwith known as Ainsties. No. Anyway, Mary's sure that uh, Gilly and Blake have wangled it somehow because of their white male privilege. Right. And she plans to join them because apparently they started letting ladies ride just before the war. Before the war! That's right. Everybody take a shot. <laughs> and uh, adds that Gilly still hasn't accepted that she's dumped him. She asks Anna if she's looking frump- frumpy. And Anna says, no, you don't look frumpy. But right. I disagree. She does look frumpy. Yeah. And Mary says she wants to remind them of what they're missing, which is weird because you're the one who's categorically denying them access to your frumpitude. Right. Which they don't seem to have a problem with. (laughs) Yeah. Again, as I've long maintained, you can look like a foot. And as long as you have something that might be a vagina, dudes are into it. Right. But yeah, this is her whole thing. She wants... She she wants the joy of continually denying them Listen, if they lose interest. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't completely understand this as a motivation because I do. Right. But at the same time, she's taking it a bit like, go right. ahead and do that, but don't be tacitly engaged to somebody. Yeah. Like that's well, taking it too far. And beyond that, the one you're just now complaining that Gilly hasn't gotten over you, but then you're like, mm, but I think I should get a makeover to make sure he doesn't get over me. Like, that's basically what you yeah, just said. This is really, uh, this is some severely circular logic here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anna, for some reason, says that Mary would never be that heartless. And I'm like, you have been working in this house. Oh, with her specifically. For at least 12 years. Yeah. Have you not seen the evidence that nothing beats in her chest? <laughs> there's merely the low, dull thrum of a lump of coal. <laughs> Like, it's, there's no there there, Anna. Right. Like, quit trying to see the good in this particular person. Because it's just not there. Yeah. And we love her for it. Oh, yeah. But you need to, like, don't... It's not your job. She doesn't even want you to tell her that she's a good person. <laughs> she's like, oh, no, I'm a terrible person. Right. I, I just explained my whole heartless scheme to you. I don't know... I'm quite mean. <laughs> At the Dower House, the Dowager and Isabel are playing cards as a Dowager says that Shrimpy is closing in on the princess. Uh, she's in cahoots with the, the Duchess! Duchess. If only that were true. I know. Well, here's hoping. I mean, who knows what she's getting up. The princess in Hong Kong. Yeah, we haven't seen the duchess since that party. So who knows what she's doing? Yeah, she could be, you know, one of her many foreign contacts. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Isabel asks if the Dowager will tell Karagan about this news. And she says that she thinks she should. And also that she would like to go alone. Like, Isabel... This is an AP conversation, so see your way out. And Isabel says, oh, quite right. <laughs> Some new maid blunders in and apologizes, and then the Dowager Countess introduces her to Isabel, uh, which I like this scene because she says, oh, this is my cousin, Mrs. Crawley. You'll find she's a frequent visitor. And it's just really cool for her to say that, given the arc of their relationship. Right. They have had the most satisfactory relationship arc of anybody on this show. And it's not yeah. that they don't still butt heads frequently because they do. Right. But they've really come to some sort of even kind of still begrudging respect. Yeah. But it's just, you know, it's just nice to see the way that the Dowager has warmed to Isabel and vice versa. Right, right. Anyway, uh, the maid's name is Danker. Yeah. Uh, I guess she's one of those THC maids. <laughs> 
And uh, the Dowager Countess asks Danker what she wants. Danker says that it can wait. But then she goes back on that and just wants to know which luggage she travels with. Uh, the Dowager Countess is like, what the fuck, dude? I don't travel that much. I'm really old. Yeah. But she <laughs> says to ask Spratt. And then Danker is like, oh, Spratt will help me, will he? And I'm like... No, man. Like, I don't know why anybody thinks Spratt would ever help anybody. No, he'll just bug his eyes out mm-hmm. and... Uh, Puff his chest up. Right. Down in the servants' hall, Anna tells Thomas that he should take a rest, but he claims that he has never felt better, uh, which is clearly untrue. I also just want to point out, the three senior staff are leaving the following day to go look at this cottage. Anna's like, put your feet up, Thomas. Take a load off. Do any of these people do any work anymore ever? Uh, it's only Madge. That's why we never <laughs> see her. She's <laughs> wound up taking on all the responsibilities. She's blacking the stove and, like, stoning the front steps. Right, and polishing a shoe with her foot. And <laughs> In the boot room. <laughs> <laughs> She's got an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine hooked up. <laughs> it braids Edith's hair. <laughs> Bates says that Thomas has never looked worse, but Thomas is like, uh, you know, since you don't care about me, I think I'm going to go ahead and not care about you, dude, which is fair. Anna says that she is going to go down to the cottage because she left a button box there, uh, but then the bell rings calling Anna, so Bates says that he will go fetch it for her. Seems perfectly innocuous. Uh, sure. Buttons. Right. Everybody loves buttons. <laughs> That's right. Except the Amish. Well, I suppose. They may love buttons. They just can't have them. <laughs> They look at them in a window. Uh, for lunch, they're serving deep-fried bummer. <laughs> By which I mean Edith is present. Right. Uh, Mary wants to know when her editor will arrive. McGee tells her it'll be sometime in the afternoon. Edith just stares into space as they discuss her personal affairs. <laughs> right. Lord Grantham says he should have some drawings for Mary and Tom to look at of the new buildings. And Rose wants to know why they're such a building spurt. Mary says it's because the war showed how badly the population was housed. And Lord Grantham adds, you can't expect to get an A1 population out of C3 homes, which he thinks he read on a poster. It is worth noting that I was watching this episode in a hotel lobby (laughs) uh, where this festival I've been doing is headquartered. And I laughed out loud (laughs) in the lobby of this fancy hotel (laughs) when he said that. I just... There was just something so guileless about the way he said that. And like, he was like, oh, like he thought maybe like it had come from something. And he's like, oh, no, just a poster. That's right. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also like the uh, the insight into, I mean, you know, from my socialist perspective, mm-hmm. like it was fine keeping all the poor in terrible houses. And then they were like, oh, we might need all these poor people to go die in the mud in France yeah. someday. So, And, you know, if they had better houses, some of them might die more slowly than others. <laughs> right. Or close. Closer to our enemies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mary explains about the point to point, and Rose says Atticus was talking about it. McGee's like, Atticus. And Rose is like, Yeah, that dude I won't shut up about. <laughs> McGee's like, Listen, I'm having a marital crisis right now. You'll have to speak up. <laughs> um, so. McGee wants to know if Atticus is a friend now. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
Rose says that he is. <laughs> right. Uh, Lord Grantham says that the Cinderbees are wooing the county because they've just bought Canningford Grange, which all of this is information that was covered in literally the last episode. Yes, it was. So I'm not sure why we're rehashing it now. Right. But Lord Grantham asks if Lord Cinderby is rich, which is very gauche. <laughs> well, it's, and it's like, why? Do you want to get involved and help him lose all his money? <laughs> right. And also, uh, they just bought Canningford Grange. I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes. Well, and that's what Mary says. She's like, I can't see why they'd take it on if they weren't. Right. Uh, Rose suggests that they all go to the point to point and make a day of it. And Edith looks like she's about to throw up. Which I have to say, like, at some point, somebody should have been like, oh, listen, everyone, you know how we all have our satisfying lives and our plans and stuff that are moving forward? Let's maybe not talk about that today and restrict our comments to the weather. Right. Like, this would be the perfect time to practice some of that famous stiff upper lip crap. Yeah, agreed. Mary says that they can bring Granny, Isabel, and the children and make a day of it, uh, which actually does sound like a good time, yeah, considering no, I... they don't have TV and apparently never use their radio. <laughs> Mary asks McGee if uh, everybody can stay at Downton, uh, Blake and Gilly and all the rest. Sure. And McGee says, sure, because, you know, why not? That's all they do anymore. Right. It's like they're a hotel that never presents a bill. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say they're like a hotel for dogs? <laughs> Possibly. Don Cheadle, what are you doing here? Uh, anyway, then everybody remembers that Edith is still around and bummed out. Lord Grantham then uh, kind of self-congratulatorily asks everyone to leave him and Edith alone to meet the editor when he arrives. Because, again, when have you two been such besties? Like, the uh, last time that they were pals was in season one when they were the only two people who were sad about Patrick dying. Right. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, this series, and that's it. Yeah. But so now they're best friends. Right. Well, they kind of were in the, in last season. I guess there's Kind of some at the end, when she's that. like, you know, whatever I do, I love you. And I'm like, but even then, I was like, do you? Right. Do you even know you live there still? <laughs> well, because, I mean, it was, what, season three, when he was talking about, you know, Edith caring for them in their old age, and he was like, what a ghastly thought. Yes. I, oh, I do recall that. So, I guess I, consistency, not fellows or Neem's strong suit here. Right. I guess Lord Grantham is like, well, I've only got two daughters left, and one of them gives me crap about my plans for the estate all the time. <laughs> so, Edith, it is. <laughs> So Bates strolls around the cottage uh, eating something. Which Poison I, pie? <laughs> possibly. <laughs> no, I, I know. Last... It was such a I weird... <laughs> and it's so... It, no, it's very Baron Fellows. I'm like, what's he eating? And he's like, I'll never tell. <laughs> I spent the last two years developing an immunity to poisoned pie. <laughs> uh, so he's looking in various drawers and cabinets when what to his wondering eye should appear but a diaphragm and the book married love. Well, I'm sure nothing's going to happen with this. Right. Let's move on. <laughs> Danker and the Dowager are walking through some random alley. Danker is very surprised at their destination. And the Dowager Countess hopes that Danker's standards aren't too high to continue working with her. And Danker's like, oh, no, not so high as that, my lady. And I'm like, this is a weird scene. It is. Like, I would have rather known what Bates was eating <laughs> than have seen this. <laughs> not finding a knocker, the Dowager knocks with her cane. And tells Danker to stay behind in this sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> right. And I'm not totally sure that was the right choice. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wait out here. People will assume you're a prostitute, but just tell them no. It should be fine. Yeah. 
A car pulls up to Downton, and Molesley greets the editor, we assume. Downstairs, Carson tells Hughes that it is as we feared. I don't feel like the servants have thought about this at all. Yeah. I mean, not- I mean, and I think, honestly, I feel like sometimes Mrs. Hughes is the audience proxy. Yeah. Because I feel like every time her character is told about something that, like, the show's trying to make us care about, she's <laughs> like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Uh, Patmore comes along and gets filled in on the story, and then she says that she has heard Carson wants to come to the cottage, and she supposes that this is the olive branch, and says that he can come, and he can buy the tea. Waka waka! Right. Even though Patmore just inherited all this money. Uh, I think she's well within her rights. I think so, too. In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore tells Daisy that Carson wants to come along, and Daisy says that he wants her to forgive him. Mrs. Patmore invites Daisy to come along, but Daisy says she has work to do, unlike apparently everyone else. Right. Who's going to make the spotted dick, Mrs. Patmore? (laughs) Who's going to make it? Madge. (laughs) (laughs) She's a Madge of all work. (laughs) Mrs. Patmore thinks that she's been working harder since the homely liberal left. Daisy says she is, and she's determined not to let the homely liberal down. I mean, did the homely liberal really want you to work harder at being a cook? Did the homely liberal know that you own a farm? (laughs) Right. Was she aware that you had seized the means of production? (laughs) Excellent question. Uh, But I think, no, I mean, I think Daisy is, I mean, because Daisy too, though, I mean, she's determined not to let her studies get behind. And she's also determined, sort of as a corollary, not to let her work fall off to the point where Carson or somebody could be like, you you know, I totally understand that. Yeah. In the studio apartment of faded aristocratic glory, Karagan offers tea to the Dowager Countess. He says it's about the only thing he's capable of providing. Uh, and he's actually not even good at that. <laughs> right. He's like, I can just about manage tea. <laughs> like, not quite, but you know. Yeah, it doesn't taste good. But, uh, and you the can Dowager tra- says, almost only counts in horseshoes. <laughs> <laughs> he asks the Dowager how she found him. She says it was through Rose. And he asks if she came alone. He's, she says that her maid is outside being solicited. <laughs> Or stabbed. <laughs> right. Well, or I would both. Say, yeah, solicited, then stabbed. Yeah. I think that's possible. <laughs> that would really wrap up this Danker Sprat conflict in a hurry. Danker <laughs> is no more Sprat. <laughs> yeah, except then there would Very be- good, my lady. <laughs> except then there would be a two season arc where Sprat is getting investigated for the murder. <laughs> <laughs> you get a murder prison, and you get a murder prison, and you get a murder prison. Uh, we found out that Dinker stabbed herself. <laughs> Rather than work with Spratt. <laughs> anyway, Kragan says that he is glad to be in a world where ladies are accompanied by maids and not uh, being slaughtered by peasants. And asks why she didn't get a car from Lord Grantham. And the Dowager says that she could have, but she didn't want to tell him where she was going. Kragan's like, well... This is not our first secret assignation. We're just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. However, the Dowager is not excited. She prefers to leave the past in the past. Karagin is like, so why did you come then to this apartment of the past? <laughs> <laughs> and she says it's because Shrimpy is close to finding the princess. Uh, they know she was alive when she left Russia, and they believe that she was put on a boat to Hong Kong. Karagin does not care. He says that he wanted the Dowager from the moment he first saw her more than mortal man ever wanted woman, which I got to admit to some skepticism there. I mean, he's Russian, dude. Uh, yeah. Hyperbole is in the blood. I suppose that's true. The Dowager calls that a historical detail, 
But Karagan says that if the princess were dead, he would ask the dowager to run away with him. Dowager says, wouldn't be running away as there's no one to run away from. Which is like the somehow saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. It's a very sad episode for the Dowager Countess. It is. She is, she's almost as much of a bummed out person as Edith in this episode. Yeah. Well, because Karagan says even now he loves the Dowager more than the princess. And the Dowager says, please don't. Uh, because it makes it sound like they're unhappy and she doesn't think he was and she knows that she is not unhappy. Karagan says she wouldn't admit to being unhappy even if she was because she would think it ill-bred. Mm-hmm. Quite true. And the Dowager says, Igor, you do know me. Mm-hmm. Igor. Uh, uh. Right. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. And uh, he agrees. Yeah. And I, you know, I like believe him to an extent about mm-hmm. loving her. But I'm like, I just feel like this is one of those things where like you had this fling or whatever. Right. And, you know, possibly your only fling. And so you're like building it up in your mind. Yeah. I mean, and, you-, you know, and, and. I think that they, you know, obviously they do know each other to an extent and they shared some intimacy. Right. Like, whether that ever extended to anything physical or not. Sure, sure. But, like, it's just sort of ludicrous. I mean, he's in love with the idea of her. Yeah. And she's clearly compartmentalized whatever she felt and was like, okay, well, that was fun. I'm going to just leave it here with my Fabergé egg. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, what has it been, 30 years? I mean, it has to be more. How old is Lord Grantham? He's got to be in his mid-50s. Right. But he was born at the time we Yeah, know. but I mean, my impression was that it was like they were still like very young. I'm yeah. thinking it was more like 40 or... Well, yeah, I would say 40. Okay, yeah. 35, 40. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, calculable. But anyway, yeah. I mean, it's been that long. You know, you can't love somebody well, that much. Well, you... whenever the wedding of the right. uh, czar or the prince... Which, didn't we talk about what we, year that we was? Did. We did. Yeah, it's been established what Boy, year that was. we sure don't have good retention. <laughs> no, we don't. Not like Karagin, apparently. No, he remembers everything. Yeah. Carson hangs up the phone. Mrs. Hughes asks who it was, and he says, Officer Bummer, a.k.a. Sergeant Willis, right. which I could not in an exchange on Facebook uh, <laughs> remember for the life of me. I was like, uh, detectives, uh, Holmes, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, sure. Anyway, Officer Bremer wants to come back with the man from Scotland Yard, this time to see Baxter. And again, Mrs. Hughes is like, oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) And she wants to know why anyone in the entire world would want to see Baxter. (laughs) Right. Carson's also confused. She's quite dull. Uh, Anyway, apparently they're coming the next morning and Mrs. Hughes hopes they don't stay long so they don't miss their cottage viewing. And I'm like, well, nothing is getting done tomorrow by anyone. Yeah. Lord Grantham enters the small library, or maybe it's the real library. I don't never. There's a lot. This is like a different library to me. Yeah, because McGee's like sitting at this desk. Yeah. But anyway, he tells McGee that the editor has left. McGee asks if he wanted tea. Lord Grantham says he offered tea and dinner and everything, but the editor had to get back, and he confirms that Gregson is dead. McGee says that that's terrible, and asks. And was it this Herr Hitler? Because old timey people didn't <laughs> know stuff. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham says yes, him or his thugs, during the beer keller putsch, which I'll get to in a moment, but that is just chronologically impossible. But he says that in the confusion of the putsch, they lost track of Gregson, but now they've found what's left of him. How good were their, like, uh, bones tools or whatever? (laughs) Right. What do they call that? When you, you know, dental records and stuff. And sure. Well, like forensics or whatever. Yeah, forensics. Yeah. But what are they, they had like Emily Deschanel on the case, yeah. right? 
Yeah. Makes sense. And David Boreanaz. <laughs> the Weimar Republic version <laughs> thereof. It was uh, Emily with an I-E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Deschanel could stay, though, I would think. Oh, totally. Uh, McGee says, well, at least they locked Hitler up for five years. But Lord Grantham says that Coombs says he won't serve anything close to that. I guess that's probably the editor. Way to use an antecedent without a pronoun. Yeah, fellows. <laughs> Lord Grantham also says that Gregson left his company to Edith, which he hopes will help her. McGee says that was generous, and Lord Grantham is like, well, I suppose they loved each other. Which but- seems like a really dumb thing to say. Like, <laughs> op- like, no, she's moping around <laughs> because she didn't like the guy. Right. McGee asks how Edith is taking it. Lord Grantham says that it's hard to say because he does not understand social cues. (laughs) (laughs) McGee asks if she should go see Edith. Lord Grantham says she's gone for a walk to be on her own, she has claimed. Uh, Yeah. Well, anyway, before we get to that. (laughs) Right. It's time for the first of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our own beer hall bouncer, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. All right. So the beer hall putsch took place... On November 8th of 1923, uh, this is a problem for the chronology of the show because this would have been a full year, at least, after Gregson and Edith last saw each other. Mm-hmm. Like, the baby was born in the summer of 23. Yeah. And this is well after that. And and he disappeared immediately upon leaving. Right. So, we know it takes nine months to have a baby. You can check that on Wikipedia. It's true. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so this was months after that. and it- Or get pregnant yourself. <laughs> right. It's a science experiment. You can do at home. That's right. No special equipment required. <laughs> In fact, special equipment is uh, specifically... Uh, Counterindicated. That's right. As we shall see later in this episode. Uh, so anyway, and I don't even like... Obviously, they were looking through the calendar of this series and were like, oh, the beer hall putsch happened. And so let's work that in somehow. And they decided that that would be how Gregson had died, even though it makes no sense. And like all that it could have just been that in the chaos of that, like some evidence turned up of something that had actually happened, you know, at a reasonable time, according to the show's chronology. Mm -hmm. But no, they just decided to. No, and I mean, I don't know if we read that letter on the podcast. I think we did, but somebody was like, oh, you know, they were like bringing up the beer hall. Is it putsch? Uh, I just sort of say putsch. Putsch? Yeah. Whatever. And, you know, yeah. Um. Anyway, they mentioned it, but I think they also pointed out that that happened later, so it couldn't have been that particularly. But it's like, right. I just, that is such an egregious historical error. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I can't think, you know, they generally don't make this bad of a chronological you know they make a lot of bad social decisions i think right but or you know anachronistic ones yeah yeah but but, i mean this is just i don't know why this matters so much to me yeah but but this is very troublesome yeah so anyway that's all we're gonna say about that so we're in a fight with you (laughs) fellows in neem if you're listening and we're pretty sure you are that's right you thought you could fool us but you can't nope you can fool some of the people some of the time, but we're not some of the people. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, so getting back to Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Hitler's, you know, whole philosophy was built out of the Dolchstoss legenda, uh, the stab in the back myth, which was very popular in Germany, which basically said that they hadn't really lost the war, uh, but, you know, Jews and Marxists back home had undermined the military, had, you know, stabbed them in the back and betrayed the German army, which, um, had never been beaten in the field, they would say. That's uh, so insane. Yeah. Well, it was largely originated by Ludendorff, who was the main German general for most of World War One, With a very ridiculous name. Yes. Well, it was particularly ridiculous for Ludendorff because he... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because he knew darn well that the German army, in fact, got their butts kicked at, at the Second Battle of the Marne and the Battle of Amiens. Amiens? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, but it was basically his fault because he advanced ahead of his supply lines and could not resist the counterattack. Why did you ever, ever do that? Well, I mean, he was in a tight spot because he knew the Americans were coming and he was trying to make a, a sudden move that would end the war before they could really get over there. And it failed. Mm. But I mean, it was his fault and it was a military defeat. Anyway, that said... If you were a soldier, or in fact a general, it would be much more comforting to believe that you would have won if not for some nefarious other people that betrayed you. Mm-hmm. So, And the German army after World War I basically did not recognize legitimacy of the Weimar Republic, and they sort of formed their own state within the state that had its own minister to, uh, ministerial departments and all this sort of thing, and all this effort to lobby the actual government to force them into agreeing with whatever the military's policy was. And so, among other things, they ran education and propaganda departments that uh, would have national thinking courses, which Hitler took part in. And this is sort of the beginning of his political life. That's one of the more horrifying phrases I've ever heard. Yes, indeed. Uh, He was recruited out of that to become an agent to infiltrate a political party. Uh, Once he began infiltrating it, he realized that he quite agreed with this political party and quickly became their leader. This is the, the German Workers' Party, which... You know, I forget the exact details of what became the Nazi party, but this is, you know, one of the various seeds for it. Uh, so at this point, and by bringing other patriotic associations into alliance with this party, he had about 15,000, uh, you know, thugs. Twitter followers? <laughs> well, Twitter followers in the sense that they would beat people up for him. I feel like if, if Hitler had had Twitter, it would have just been all caps all the time. <laughs> throwback thursday remember how the jews betrayed us oh god (laughs) let's not speculate further on september 26 1923 the bavarian prime minister declared a state of emergency and appointed this guy gustav von Kahr as basically a dictator uh and the head of the state police and the leading general all ruled with him they were this triumvirate Hitler was feeling pressured to act because everybody in his group felt that the communists were about to take over Berlin. People always think the communists are about to take over a place, and they so rarely do. It's true. And they were also all inspired by Mussolini, who had marched on Rome the previous year and taken over, uh, which was different in that case because... He had the trains running on time. (laughs) Well, eventually. (laughs) Uh, And the... Italians really did at the time, the government felt like they had to choose between being taken over by the communists or by the fascists. So they're mm-hmm. like, well, we'll, we'll take the fascists. <laughs> uh, the triumvirate had actually encouraged this thinking that there should be a march on Berlin, but basically they were hoping that other people would do it and then they wouldn't have to take any responsibility and, you know, just take over if it succeeded. 
they realized that the Weimar government was not going to allow it like the Italian government yeah, had. Yeah, they the, were like, don't fuck with our cabarets, dude. Yeah, they're like, listen, we will bring in the army and we'll crush this if you try it. So the triumvirate met uh, to decide what they were going to do. So they held a meeting in the Burgerbrau Keller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hitler, realizing that he had not been invited to this meeting because the triumvirate didn't really like him very much, he decided that his influence was at its height, the people were demanding action, he had to do something. So he went to the beer Burgerbrau Keller with 600 thugs and a machine gun. The thugs surrounded the hall, and Hitler and about 20 of his associates walked in. Von Karr was giving a speech, but Hitler jumped on a chair, fired a shot into the ceiling, and declared that the National Revolution had broken out, the Bavarian government was deposed, and a new government was formed, including Ludendorff, who was not there, and it doesn't seem like he had actually been asked about this at the time. (laughs) They took the triumvirate at gunpoint into a side room and demanded their support, but they refused. So Hitler went back into the main room, he left some of his guys in there with the triumvirate, and gave a speech saying that their action was not directed against Germany, but against the Berlin Jew government and the November criminals of 1918. An eyewitness reported, quote, I cannot remember in my entire life such a change in the attitude of a crowd in a few minutes, almost a few seconds. It had almost something of hocus pocus or magic about it. The triumvirate could not help but notice that he'd won the crowd over, and also at this point, they brought in Ludendorff. Somebody had gone in and fetched him, and they had talked him into supporting the the pooch. And uh, his pressure finally convinced the triumvirate to give in, and that was pretty much the peak of this putsch, because nobody really had a step two in their plan after this. They did not really think about what they were going to do next. Uh, Ludendorff let the triumvirate go free, and one of them, the general, was quickly persuaded by the other generals to abandon the putsch, which, you know, obviously he'd only been forced into in the first place. Uh, and meanwhile, another cabinet minister who had not been present immediately announced a government in exile and sent orders to all the police, soldiers, and civil ser- servants to remain loyal. And at that point, that was pretty much it. There was no way this was going to succeed. Uh, so the next morning, Hitler, realizing that the putsch was going nowhere, announced, we will march. Uh, but he did not say where to because he didn't really have any idea. <laughs> so they just sort of randomly decided to march on the Bavarian Defense Ministry. Uh, but there were a 100 soldiers blocking their path or state police blocking their path. Shots were exchanged for the police and 16 Nazis got killed. Hitler and Goering were both wounded. And then Hitler was arrested two days later. So... For such a fairly farcical, spur-of-the-moment, disorganized thing, it worked out great for Hitler. Uh, first of all, the judges at his trial were hugely pro-Nazis. Some of them tried to get him acquitted altogether, but the lead judge forced them to give him some kind of sentence, which wound up being five years in the equivalent of minimum security. Uh, and very importantly as well, he was not deported to Austria because he was an Austrian citizen and by the laws of the Republic being convicted of treason, he should have been deported back to Austria, which he was very afraid of happening. Uh, but the judge decided that the law did not apply to him because, quote, he thinks and feels like a German. So he was the piper in Orange is the New Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Uh, Every word of his trial was reported in the press, which also upped his profile and popularity. And then he used the nine months he wound up actually serving to write Mein Kampf. Great. Yeah. Good Uh, job, Germany. Yeah. Uh, And then a couple other... I feel like the entirety of 1914 through 1944 can just be summed up with, good job, Germany. (laughs) Right. Uh, Ludendorff was found innocent because he claimed to have only been there on accident. And, uh, I wasn't even supposed to be here today! 
And uh, Gehring, uh, the aftermath for him, uh, he got wounded in uh, the groin, which he, and then got addicted to morphine, which he would stay addicted to for the rest of his life, which may not have aided his leadership of the Luftwaffe. Uh, that is a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So how many people actually died in the the push well basically those 16 nazis and four policemen there were i mean there was so not any civilian deaths there might have been a few uh there was you know sort of disorder and confusion going on um but no not really (laughs) these are the other things that bother me about this historical inaccuracy so what we found out last season was that somebody saw Gregson get into an argument with one of these quote unquote thugs. Right. And you know, that was the, the, the fight, mm-hmm. you know, and like he was like beaten up or something. Right. And nothing that you've said sounds like the kind of situation where a random book nerd <laughs> right. would like insert himself into any kind of what was he arguing with Hitler now? <laughs> like is that was he just like this shall not stand? I have a mad wife. Like Right. And I definitely know that Hitler's going to be a big deal in a few years. <laughs> because this old Tommy person does know stuff. <laughs> um no, so it doesn't make any sense that he would have been at all involved in this because most, you know, expatriates living abroad do their best not to get involved in local politics. Right. And, you know, this is a man who had everything to live for. Mm-hmm. And as far as I could tell, no firm political beliefs of any kind. <laughs> right. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not saying he wouldn't have been opposed to what, but I mean, the, the ethos mm-hmm. of the National Socialist, the National Socialist Party didn't even exist. Right. At that point. Right. You know, and it's not clear to me exactly what people were saying, Mm -hmm. but there would have been no particular reason for him to think that their bigotry or whatever was something that was going to be implemented on a large scale. Right. And again, he's a card sharp. He's not a soldier, dude. He's not like, I wouldn't ever bet on him in a fight. Right. Unless it was with Sir Anthony Strallen. Right. And like, I can understand, like... He may, you know, I'm sure he disagreed with the, you know, these fascists or whatever Mm -hmm. and had his, but, you know, nobody goes up, like, these are, again, this is like a street gang. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like, you don't go up to a bunch of Hell's Angels and be like, you know, your motorcycles are really responsible for a lot of noise pollution. And I thought somebody needed to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, just, you don't do that. Yeah. And I mean, moreover, I don't know. It's hard to say, but it's like there's not that much incentive for the thugs. No. It's not like he votes. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're nationalist and he's a foreigner. You know, so. And listen, you know, some people are just, you know, some yeah. men just want to watch the world burn, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. But like it just it doesn't check out as part of this push, which yeah. I think I've pronounced seven different ways. <laughs> right. Um, And it doesn't make sense in the timeline. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just, anyway. It really doesn't make sense. extremely frustrating. Yeah. I like the word beer keller. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean beer seller? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> German. What a language. <laughs> no, I wanted, <laughs> I would imagine that the education and propaganda department of the, of the Bavarian army had like a single word name that was like 20 syllables, mm-hmm. but I didn't track it down. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tom. You're that welcome. That was very informative and infuriating. <laughs> Glad to help. Speaking of infuriating, <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise, on her walk, Edith has found herself at Pig Farm. Oh. Hooray. Way to be alone, Edith. 
Mrs. Pigman tells her it's not convenient for her to see Marigold. And then Pigman comes up and uh, Mrs. Pigman is like, uh, I'm not letting her inside. And Edith says, there's no need to be rude. And I'm like, I, you I know think there's extreme reason to be rude. You know what's rude? Showing up at somebody's house uninvited. Uh-huh. That is rude. Yeah. Like, ask. I'm sorry. Have you not been living in Edwardian England? Right. Like, like just because they're poor doesn't mean you have to, like, can't use etiquette. Yeah, I know. Send a pig over to ask if it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, boy? <laughs> Lady Edith again. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> anyway, Mrs. Pigman says she's not coming in, and that's flat. And she goes back inside. Pigman says he wishes Edith hadn't jumped the gun. Yep. And Edith says she had bad news and needed to see Marigold. Pigman asks if it's Gregson. Edith says yes. Pigman says he's sorry to hear it, but he just needs time. Edith says she doesn't have time. And uh great. Yeah. Awesome. You don't have time? What, is Gregson going to get deader? He just did. Well, right. But that's over now. I mean, they might come back and be like, oh. You know, Emily with an I.E. Deschanel and David Boreanaz <laughs> figured out that, that wasn't actually Gregson and we don't know what's going on with him. <laughs> no, ah, uh, and that anachronism, like, I, now I want an alternate universe fanfic that's like Gregson's lost year. <laughs> yeah. Just wandering the Bavarian countryside, yodeling. Spoiler alert, he was living in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> now he found this troupe of experimental theater artists. Uh, of course he did. That is all. Like, that's Germany's major export. Confusing theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't know what it means, Isa. <laughs> it is about the life on the death <laughs> on the sadness. Go back to Dresden. Yeah, we love Dresden. <laughs> we perform in a bombed out church. <laughs> Ooh, it is so spooky. We bombed it ourselves. <laughs> It is called Found Space. <laughs> <laughs> Down in the servants' hall, Thomas says that he's sorry about Gregson, but he's been dead over a year. Uh, Anna says that he didn't die for Edith until today, and that's what's important. Which is the only sympathetic thing literally anyone in this episode says. Like, it's even true. like with like McGee and Lord Grantham, they're kind of like, meh. Right. They're like, it must be terrible, we imagine. Yeah. We don't know what sadness is. <laughs> We're very rich. Bates says he supposes so in a weird way while looking at Anna weirdly. Mm-hmm. Amosley asks what Daisy is studying. She says the War of the Spanish Succession. Mosley starts to say he's very interested in that, but Daisy left already. Good job, Daisy! <laughs> Baxter tries to save the situation by asking Mosley what he was going to say, but he's like, oh, never mind. And that was the end of Mosley. <laughs> In the Dower House, Spratt storms in and says he's sorry to disturb the Dowager Countess. And Isabel, who's there, but undoubtedly he does not care about her common ways. <laughs> but they're having a big problem with Danker. Apparently, she wants to send all the laundry to the big house, even the smaller items. Right. Uh, A.K.A. small clothes for you Game of Thrones fans out <laughs> That's there. That's right. The Dowager Countess says Spratt that he's losing his sense of the appropriate. But Spratt says Danker's in the kitchen shouting and refusing to wash the Dowager Countess's things. Yeah. The Dowager says she's sure that this is very interesting to Isabel. It probably is, actually. Right. She's like, oh, yes. I'm very interested in human fluid. <laughs> Spratt says that he's... You he should so see the horse things. <laughs> oh, those poor horse. I know. 
Sprat says he's sorry and asks if he can send Danker in and then goes off without waiting for an answer. Yeah. Uh, the Dowager Countess apologizes to Isabel, but Isabel says that she's enjoying it. <laughs> and the Dowager Countess says that's what she was afraid of. <laughs> Isabel asks if the Dowager's going to the point to point. Uh, she thinks she will, and then Isabel's glad because dot 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 yeah uh the dowager makes her finish and isabel says she's invited murdy to tea the following day Ooh. uh the dowager asks if she's decided and isabel says yes but not to pester her she will tell the dowager countess what happens on saturday danger comes in and says she's having a problem with spratt which is ironic because spratt's having a problem with danker what, what are they gonna a crazy do pair. Oh, i thought we were gonna say <laughs> the same thing i know we did it before with the duchess well sometimes it works out kelly <sighs> podcasting never know what's gonna happen uh danker says that she thinks collins the previous maid must have pandered to spratt but he doesn't know the proper role of a lady's maid which apparently doesn't include washing the small clothes which i'm pretty sure it does i would think but uh i don't look i once worked costume crew for a dance concert and we definitely had to scrub (laughs) menstrual blood stains out of people's costumes so i don't want to hear it from you danker (laughs) The Dowager Countess says that they all pander to Spratt in this house, which I think is fucking stupid. Well, yeah. He is not pander-worthy. I agree. Danker says that she doesn't, but she'll discuss it when the Dowager Countess doesn't have company and then leaves. Isabel says that this is why she doesn't have a lady's maid or a butler. And the Dowager Countess doesn't think that's funny. No. (laughs) She is annoyed. Boot room. More like boot (laughs) room. (laughs) Bates is there. Anna walks in and says once she's done with her boot room business, she'll go back to their cottage and read. Uh, says that Edith is dreadfully cut up, according to Madge. Where's Madge? I know. Where's anybody? <laughs> Keeps talking about Greg's for a bit as Bates refuses to engage with the conversation. Anna finally asks him what the matter is, and he says that he couldn't find her button box. And Anna's like, uh, okay, fine. Not She's like, bit- I forgot about it. And I was like, well, then why did you care in the first place? Yeah. I mean... Like, is- were you going to play tiddlywings, or were you going to fix some shit? <laughs> right. Is Mary still walking around with, like, a strap hanging off? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I do look frumpy, and it's all your fault. <laughs> anyway, Bates says that he did find something. Uh, married life and, quote, a box containing a cunning piece of equipment... To ensure there would be no baby baits. Like, baby baits. Right. Like, can you even imagine? They would turn it into murder baby so fast. <laughs> I can just see that baby in murder prison. <laughs> like the baby mentalist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, incidentally, everyone, Tom just made me watch the baby mentalist. Right. Starring a hot up and coming star, Randall Park. Yeah. Uh, but it is very funny. Yeah. And you should watch it. <laughs> you should. Oh, that baby mentalist. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, Anna asks if she's supposed to applaud Bates poking around in her things. Nope. <laughs> but Bates says it's not for Anna to be angry. He should be angry. I am I am angry. Right. It is for us to be angry. And we are. That this is happening. Yeah, Bates says that Anna claims to be longing for a child and that it's in God's hands, but she seems to have put it in Miss Stopes' hands instead. Mrs. Stopes' hands have never been anywhere near Anna. Right. Anna says that it's not like that. Bates asks what it is like, but then Lily comes in. So Anna says that she'll leave the shoes that she brought in on the table for Lily to take care of. So, like, whose shoes are those? And why are we seeing Lily and not Madge? Is she the Maris of this show? Like, what the (laughs) fuck is going on? Yeah. Um, Also, does this mean that Bates has, like, 
touched Lady Mary's diaphragm that's been inside of her? Ah. Uh, I mean, uh, hopefully not. Hopefully you just saw the box. Yeah. And saw, and was like, oh, I hate my wife now. And you saw but the, the me- picture that had a baby with a circle slash on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this... And this is the thing. I don't like this thing that's developed with Bates. And I don't think he was like this when they first got together. I agree. He was very sweet when they first got together Mm -hmm. and was like a nice person. Yeah. But now he's become this person who develops these insane, Mm -hmm. angry theories and takes it out on Anna. No, he's like... I mean, he's just such a, like, bad news boyfriend. Yeah. He's he's just become awful. Yeah. And I just don't like it because yeah. they used to be this great couple. Right. Again, we're just coming back to these consistency issues. Yeah. And, I mean, he's just become the most terrifying person. Yeah. He's the person where, like, when they break up for, like, a minute, you're not even going to tell her that you hate him because you just know they're going to get back together again. Yeah. And she'll tell him. And then he'll be like, well, you can't hang out with her anymore. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's, I just don't like this development. Yeah, it's no fun for anyone. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't, and especially because, you know, with the structure of the show, we're still supposed to be like rooting for them or yeah. whatever. But how can we root for them when it's so unpleasant? No. And I will say, like, at least Anna stands up for herself. That's true. But like, it's just, it's so absurd. Yeah. You know what I mean? Also, what was he eating? <laughs> The biggest unresolved question of this episode. I think it was just like, oh, there's that cake Anna was saving for herself. Yoink. Mm-hmm. In the kitchen, Mosley walks up to Daisy and asks if she'd like to borrow a volume of the Cambridge Modern History. He has the whole set from his dad. Daisy says uh, she has a lot of books already, but Mrs. <laughs> Patmore says not to be churlish. And Mosley says there's a good chapter on the war and politics in Queen Anne's reign, but if she's not interested, he understands. Daisy says she'll take it, and then Mosley leaves and heads out. Mrs. Patmore tells Daisy that we should always be polite to people who are kind. There's not much of it about, which I'm like, so why were you such a bitch to Carson about wanting to go see your dumb cottage? (laughs) Well, she gave it in the end. Yeah, Daisy throughout this whole scene is just like, uh... (laughs) Like, she's just so... This is like when, like, my aunt's weird boyfriends like growing up would like want to talk to me about stuff because they knew i was smart yeah and i was like why are you talking to me you weirdo <laughs> yeah that's how everybody reacts to Molesley. <laughs> Molesley, you're a weird uncle <laughs> or probably actually you're weird not quite uncle yeah lord grantham is getting ready to sleep in the dressing room mcgee comes in asks what he's told bates about his sleeping arrangements he says nothing and bates hasn't asked McGee asks if Lord Grantham would like to come back, but Lord Grantham doesn't answer and just keeps getting into the bed. The McGee says Lord Grantham heard Bricker when he said that McGee did not invite him into her room. Lord Grantham asks how he can know that that wasn't just gallantry, and McGee says, because I'm telling you. Uh, which is so great. Yeah. This is how you conduct a marital fight, Mr. Bates. <laughs> yeah. Yep. She reiterates that nothing happened. And Lord Grantham says that she did allow Bricker into her private life, a man who thought he could just step into Lord Grantham's place. Uh, he's not nearly bad enough with money for that. <laughs> it's true. He's made some good art investments. <laughs> McGee says that Bricker thought that, but he was mistaken. And then McGee, like, kind of starts to leave, but then she just says, fine. If you can honestly say that you've never let a flirtation get out of hand or have never given the woman given a woman the wrong impression, then he should stay away. And she says, like, for the duration of her marriage. Like, she's very specific right. about the time limit. Mm-hmm. 
And she says, otherwise, McGee expects him back that night. Mm-hmm. She goes out, and Lord Grantham goes to turn out his light, uh, but then he remembers that one maid. Remember yeah, her? Jane. Jane, yeah. I guess he's still paying for her son's school. Oh, right. Which is yet another terrible financial decision that he's made. Yeah, I would imagine so. You'd mm-hmm. think uh, that would have to show up in the books that Branson right? sees. But, you know, he's probably got well, it, like, coded. Well, like, Branson's got his own maid ter- issues. Terrible investment number 47. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he remembers that maid, and so he gets up to rejoin McGee. No, and this, I think, really is a great example of a marital fight, mm-hmm. because you see her, she's very upset, but she doesn't allow that to, like, cloud her judgment. She knows right. he's being petulant. He knows he's being petulant. Yeah. And, and, you know, and she just, you know, she she tries the high road, and then she goes in at the end for the jugular, and is yeah. like... And I don't, I well, honestly don't think she ever knew about Jane. Right. You know agreed. what I mean? And so, and it's not something specific, but I mean, that's just the reality of adult life. Yeah. You're gonna like Over flirt with other people and 35 stuff. 35 years. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Especially when you entertain as much as they do. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, cause it's very clearly different too. When Lord Grantham got mad the first time that she had just been out with Bricker, she was not having that at all. No. Whereas this time she's, you know, she's been more understanding. I mean, that was, you know, yeah, the dude was in the her bedroom. The situation was escalated. Right. And she understands that, but she's still, but it's been long enough now. Yeah. And she's like, no. In Mrs. Hughes's parlor, Baxter asks Officer Bummer why she's there. Uh, she wasn't even working at Downton when Mr. Green first came. Mrs. Hughes starts to back her up, but Officer Bummer interrupts her. Viner says that Baxter has some information about the Bateses. Baxter and the viewing audience are like, what? Yeah. Does she? Because right. again, I just don't remember who knows what here. Right. I mean, I guess there's been various shots of her standing in hallways, like looking... Frightened. Or something, yeah. Yeah, I don't even... What is it that she always looks... Yeah, right? it's not like that she looks... Be- it's not scared. It's not bewildered. She just... Not even flummoxed. Yeah. Like, all of those words are too emotionally charged. Right. I mean, she just looks like she just got smacked in the face and hasn't figured it out yet. Or <laughs> something. I don't know. No, that's still too... Like, I don't know. Anyway... Uh, Viner says he wants to talk about Baxter's past. Thank God we're talking about Baxter's past again. I'm so relieved because I thought we'd never get back to right? the story. Oh, line. man. So excited. <laughs> he asks if she wants to be alone. Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't think she can allow that. And Viner asks Baxter again, who says Mrs. Hughes can stay. Viner says that there are still two years of her jail sentence, uh, causing Mrs. Hughes to internally do a record stretch. <laughs> and then say, oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, she's still got two years of her jail sentence on the books, so if she breaks the terms of her release, she can be sent back. Right. And I guess not cooperating with this investigation would do that. Yeah, presumably. Anyway, Mrs. Hughes tries to start to say something, but Viner says if she interrupts again, he will ask her to leave, and, you know, this is too juicy for Hughes to leave now. <laughs> right. So, uh, Baxter says that she thinks that they think that she knows more than she does. And she believes there was an incident with Mr. Green and a mysterious journey to London, but she can't swear to any of it. Viner asks if she knows whether it was Bates that made the journey. And she says, no officer bummer. thanks her. She asks who told them that she knew anything. Officer bummer says they had a letter. Baxter asks, Baxter, boy, Baxter asks. Yeah. That's hard to say. That's another good warm up right yeah. there. Baxter asks. Baxter. Yeah. I broke my mouth. <laughs> Baxter. Ah! All right. She wants to know who sent the letter. But they're like, ha, ha, ha. Bye. Right. Uh, I think also it's obvious that it was Thomas. Yeah. Like who else sends incriminating letters that make no sense? 
Right. Edith's been too bummed out for years to do that anymore. Mrs. Hughes just has one question. Does McGee knows Baxter's story? Baxter says that she knows everything. And then Mrs. Hughes says, then we'll say no more about it because Mrs. Hughes is the bomb. Yes. I mean, if I was in that position, I would double check with McGee, but maybe she doesn't. Well, we she probably, well, she says, we'll say no more about it. Yeah, that's she true. She doesn't say, I'm not going to speak to McGee and be like, did you know? Right. Also, uh, I'm excited for series six when Baxter gets sent back to thief prison. <laughs> it's like murder prison, but with like a yellow filter. <laughs> I feel like before murder prison, Neiman Fellows just like randomly saw traffic <laughs> on like IFC or something. And they right. were like, what a brilliant notion. Different colored filters for different locations. We have filters, right? <laughs> yes, Julian. In the library, Lord Grantham shows the drawings for the new buildings to Mary Branson and McGee. Woo! Yes. It's not shutting her out anymore. Mary says that one of them is just what they're looking for. Lord Grantham says he knew she'd say that because they're the most expensive. But, like, I mean, are the prices on there? If it's the most expensive, it probably looks the best. Of course she picked that one. Yeah. What? Anyway. Uh, Tom, he's not good at anything. <laughs> The fact that he managed to get these drawings to the house without setting them ablaze <laughs> is a miracle. So let's just be thankful for small blessings. Oh, wait. This one's just a drawing I made of Isis. <laughs> I think we should choose this one. <laughs> I agree. They should call it the Isis housing estate or something. Yeah, agreed. That would be great. I love Isis. She loved that fucking Fiddler's Green or whatever it was. That's true. She was down <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that explains all the dead sailors frolicking about. Ah, <laughs> uh, they were just hanging around. <laughs> uh, Branson points out some other buildings, which Lord Grantham says are much cheaper. Mary points out that they're also much nastier. Branson says the problem is that a lot of the cottages are occupied by lifetime tenants. So it'll be years after they do these renovations that they actually see the income from them. Then McGee, uh, who's lost interest, wanders over to Isis, and Mary is saying that, oh, well, instead of this Leeds guy's, this Leeds guy's ugly houses, we're just gonna make our own ugly houses. Lord Grantham says that Branson's just trying to protect the estate. Uh, the McGee says hi to Isis, and says that she's terribly listless, and might be sick. Mary says that she probably ate a dead squirrel or something, and anyway, she's very fat, so maybe she's pregnant. This is somehow crueler than anything she said about Edith. Yeah. Isis never did anything to you. No, never. Except be the best character on this show. That's right. Oh, I'm... Mary? Yeah. You're skating on thin ice. Don't mess with Isis. No. Do not mess with Isis. Either on this show or in reality. Right. Lord Grantham says that Isis can't be pregnant. Yeah, she can't be because she's 47 years old. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then turns the conversation away from Isis, the love of his life... And uh, back to the drawings. Anyway, Mary says she supposes they must go with a cheaper option. And anyway, she's got to bounce. She has an appointment in an hour in York. Downstairs, Thomas asks Mrs. Hughes if she's seen Baxter. Mrs. Hughes is surprised because their horrible storyline hasn't been interesting to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Why do people keep wanting to see Baxter? She's awful. (laughs) Baxter comes in, having overheard. Thomas asks to talk with her, and he still looks terrible. He asks her into a bathroom and locks the door and shows her his anti-gay kit. He apologizes and she says it's all right. And he lifts up his shirt to show uh, horrible redness and swelling all around his lower back. Very requiem for a Thomas. Yeah. It's, you know, clearly the injection site. Right. 
He says he thought it would pass, but it's getting worse and he can't sleep. Thomas asks her to help him because he doesn't know what to do. Baxter says that they're going to the doctor. They'll show him what he's been injecting and taking. She says to meet him in five minutes at the back door and says in no uncertain terms to bring everything. Right. And not to be a little pussy. Yeah. And like leave some stuff behind. Yeah. Baxter starts to head out, but Thomas puts his hand on the door and he says he's done something that he shouldn't have. And if she knew what it was, she wouldn't help him. She says that she does know. Were you not aware that Officer Bummer showed up today? (laughs) Right. And leaves. Yeah. Which is good because honestly, I don't want to hear them have that discussion. Right. That's true. Um, Yeah. Again, I, you know, this whole, well, anyway, we'll discuss the whole Thomas thing shortly. In York, we assume, a man tells Mary that she looks wonderful and then steps aside to reveal a new haircut. (gasps) Also, they're playing this music that is so ridiculous to me. They played it at the fashion show, Mm -hmm. and they're playing it again now, and it just sounds like the music that gets played in Valley of the Dolls when Ann Wells (laughs) becomes the spokesperson for that hairspray or whatever. Sure. I'm sorry I can't remember the brand name, everybody. I have failed the community. Wow, she seems like a pretty lousy spokesman then, doesn't she? Listen, Tom, <laughs> I remember Lion Burke and that's really the goods. All right. Anyways. Um, but it's just like, it's just like this ridiculous, like schmaltzy. S- yeah. I know well, it's, it, it's not like sixties music, but that's what it sounds like. Right. Well, it reminds me of the music they play when Miss Piggy is walking the runway and the yes, great Muppet caper. Very much so. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, she's got a kicky new haircut. Uh, it's short in the back. And straight, whatever. I don't really know how to describe it. It's actually hair. a really great haircut, yeah. honestly. Like, I was like, damn, maybe I should get that haircut. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pretty nice. Uh, she says that Lord Grantham will explode. Uh, and thanks him as she pays. She says that she has made him feel very strong. He's made her feel very strong. Right, right. She, yeah, she doesn't care how he feels. No, why would she? <laughs> right. The barber says that she is very generous, so she clearly tipped well. Mary heads off, and then the barber, Waka Waka, drops his French accent and says in a very are-you-being-served accent uh, to his co-worker that at least Mary can carry it off. Most of them look like bald monkeys, which, I mean, there's still hair involved in that haircut. Right? I don't, I don't know. I don't believe that line. Yeah. I think I think there was an insult there that could have worked, but that wasn't it. No. Yeah, like, uh, you know, like a shaved cat? That makes some sense? I don't know. Yeah. A poodle? I don't know. Look, cousins, can you come up with a better insult? Yes. If so, we want to hear your insults. We do. In Dr. Clarkson's office, he says he's done examining Thomas. Baxter asks if it won't trouble him further. Clarkson says that as long as Thomas stops poisoning himself, he'll be fine. Right. Baxter asks if Clarkson looked at the things he brought as Thomas steps up. Clarkson says he's been injecting himself with a saline. How saline. does he say it? But he says it. I think he says it's saline. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, we say saline <laughs> solution. Baxter says that's not harmful, but Clarkson says that it wasn't sterilized and that repeated injections uh, would cause fever and abscesses at the injection site. As we have seen. He asks if Thomas has spent money on his treatment, and he says yes, a lot of money. He went to London for electrotherapy, and the pills and injections were supposed to continue the process. Clarkson asks what the purpose was, and Thomas hesitates for a minute and says, to change me, to make me more like other people, other men. Yeah. And again, Rob James Collier, who, thanks to your helpful tweets, yes. primarily, we got many, many of them. Right. We finally internalized it, yes, guys. we appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So he nails that. Yeah. Like, he looks, ah, it's so good. Yeah. So Clarkson says he won't pretend not to understand, you know, because the entire county knows that Thomas (laughs) is gay and is fine with it. 
Uh, and he doesn't blame Thomas, but there's no drug or electric shock that will achieve what he wants, which is, again, an anachronistically progressive attitude. Right. Because certainly... Well up into... I mean, the current day, people are well, still trying to do this. Yeah. And it was mainstream, at least in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this would have been an area of great interest. Yeah. At any rate, you know, whatever. Everybody is nice and they all love each other regardless of sexual orientation <laughs> on this show. Yeah. Thomas says that he's been taken for a mug and Dr. Clarkson says, accept the burden that chance has laid on him and make the best of life that he can. Harsh reality is always better than false hope, uh, which is debatable. Yeah. But probably applies here. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, but maybe it's what, you know, Thomas needs to hear. Yeah. You know, Dr. Clarkson has the RX for the daily. <laughs> Maybe not the Daily Blues. Right. The Daily Delusions. Yeah. Well, and also it seems like a very Scottish thing to say. That's also true. Yeah. As Thomas and Baxter walk back, he says that she'll get a good laugh out of this. She disagrees. She's never laughed. (laughs) (laughs) She says that Thomas won't understand, but she thinks he is very brave. Thomas does not understand. Uh, she says that to endure such pain to achieve his goal, think what he could do if he sets his mind to it. And Thomas laughs and says that she's daft. Uh, he is correct because every single one of the schemes he has worked hard at has not worked out. True. Uh, the Duke of Crowborough, that didn't work out. Nope. Getting Mr. Bates fired all those times, that didn't work out. Sure didn't. Selling all those supplies, that didn't work out. Yeah. Not being gay, really didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. Having sex with Jimmy Kent, also didn't work out. None of his schemes have ever worked out. Yeah, it's sad. The only thing that's ever worked out for him is when he got his hand shot so he didn't have to be in the war anymore. That's true. Although that one, that one was the highest stakes one. That's so true. I'll give you that. In the library, Rose mentions to McGee that she needs to write to Atticus and let him know they're all coming. McGee suggests inviting him to dinner. And Rose says, well, all right, just as a friend. And McGee is so hilarious. <laughs> I am enjoying watching McGee parent Rose. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, McGee is like, what do you, what do you take me for? <laughs> uh, but she doesn't give anything away. So she says, of course, just as a friend. <laughs> and poor Isis is still sprawled on the floor. Rose heads off. Lord Grantham pets Isis and wishes she would perk up. He says he might ask Stapley to look at her, and McGee says it couldn't hurt. I'm assuming Stapley is the game, uh, the gamekeeper. Sure. Because he would be, I guess, as well, their on-site veterinarian. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there would be a veterinarian. I mean, this is actually, well, this is still about, uh, uh, 10 years or so before those James Harriet books start Oh, up. All Creatures Great and Small? Yeah. Don't even get started. Right. In the same <laughs> part of the country. Yeah. Patmore, Hughes, and Carson arrive at the cottage. Hughes says that it looks solid. Patmore says it should be for the price. Hughes asks about the kitchen. Carson says that it's not quite the scale she's used to as we see a small stove. It's like a 30 rock, like, smash cut to this (laughs) stove. It's really jarring. (laughs) Baron Julian was like, oh, I saw this cracking program in a hotel in America. It's called 30 rock. We should do more things like they do. Ah, we squandered it with Jack Ross. <laughs> he should have had a shock tank. <laughs> Patmore says she doesn't care. It would be her own kitchen, and she could live there when she stops working. She says there's only one flight of stairs, so she's sure she can manage that no matter how old she gets. Uh, she also suggests that she could change things around when she moves in, and Carson says yes. And she really does. Like, she really is dependent on his judgment like mm-hmm. she really needs like it makes her feel secure to yeah. get his you know approval 
Patmore says, that's it. She'll take it. She'll take the key back and tell the owners or whatever that she's going to take it. Carson says that he envies her and asks Hughes if she's thought about her retirement. And Hughes says, who says I'll live to retire? I'm with you, sister. (laughs) The family stands around in the drawing room as Mary asks if they're ready. Uh, This has shades of Sybil's Turkish pants. Yeah. Uh, Atticus asks Rose what's going on and she says Mary has a surprise and that Atticus will love her and he says he's prepared to love everyone. <laughs> yeah, just as a friend. <laughs> right. Get over yourself, Rose. <laughs> Mary comes in and everybody gasps and Isabel says, Pola Negri comes to Yorkshire. Lord Grantham and Branson look up from working on a puzzle. A puzzle, uh-huh. Tom. A puzzle. Oh, believe me, I noticed. Lord they were Grant- just getting started on it too. <laughs> Lord Grantham looks a bit aghast, and McGee says they really are living in the modern world. Rose says she's jealous of the haircut, but Rose should not be jealous of that haircut because Rose's hair is too curly for that haircut. Yeah, that would not work it at all for her. It would be very frizzy. Yeah. Anyway, she introduces Atticus. Mary says that Rose has talked of nothing else, and Rose says that she's only teasing, but Atticus is happy to take it as a compliment. Mary asks the Dowager Countess her opinion, and she says, Oh, it is you. I thought it was a man wearing your clothes, which is a bit much at this late date. Well, I suppose so, but, you know. Whatever. She's got a rep to maintain. (laughs) That's right. Mary rolls her eyes. Branson says that it suits her. Mary asks if Lord Grantham agrees. He says it's what he would expect of her. (laughs) Edith. Which uh, isn't a bad uh, diplomatic way of putting it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Edith, dressed in full mourning, yeah. by the by, yeah. uh, is disturbed at the lack of bummerness in the room, <laughs> sighs and stands up. Mary says that she disapproves, and Edith says, not really, because why would she give a shit? Yeah. But she is amazed that even Mary would choose this time to try out a new fashion. Right. And I'm like, look, Edith, if we all had to wait for days when you weren't miserable to change fashions, then we would all still be wearing, like, you know, tunics <laughs> or whatever. McGee says that she doesn't think Edith is being fair, but Edith also complains about the jolly picnic and asks if she's expected to join in. Uh, and Mary says, hopefully not, as you usually spoil everything. <laughs> Which is so mean, but also so funny. I know. As Edith is in the midst of spoiling Mary's haircut. And like, the dinner. Yeah. Atticus. Mm-hmm. Edith says she can't argue with that and she'll have a tray in her room. She apologizes to Atticus, but says he might as no- well know what they're like and heads out. <laughs> <laughs> McGee says poor darling she's so unhappy actually the real drinking game for this show in this season in particular every time somebody says darling do a shot oh, wow. you'll be dead <laughs> after like three episodes Mary's angry she says Edith must have known Gregson was dead long ago they all did Isabel asks if they should go on Saturday or not and Atticus is like oh please don't cancel I never heard of this guy <laughs> Mary says she and Rose are going regardless, and uh, Lord Grantham suggests that it might be good for Edith to have a bit of time on her own to think, uh, as long as she doesn't set anything on fire this time. Right. It's a danger of her thinking. The Dowager Countess says that all this thinking is very overrated, and Rose, uh, for no reason, says, <laughs> I love you, Aunt Violet. <laughs> it's like, I love you, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> the Dowager Countess blames the war. Before 1914, nobody thought about anything at all, which is patently untrue. Patently untrue, and also, uh, the result of that was World War One. Yeah. So maybe do some more thinking now. Yeah, agreed. That brings us to our next recurring segment. With our very own cinema scamp, Kelly, and Fashion Backwards. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Pola Negri 
who was name-checked by, uh, of all people, Isabel. (laughs) That's right. Because as I was reading about Pola Negri, I was like, why would Isabel know this much about Pola Negri? I mean, not that she demonstrated a deep (laughs) knowledge of Pola Negri. Right. uh, Because the resemblance between her and Mary is, uh, you know, passable. Right. uh, Particularly with this haircut. So Pola Negri was uh, born in Poland in 1897. She was a stage and film actress uh, who was a very big star during the silent and golden eras of Hollywood and European film. And she was uh, really one of the first femme fatales. She Ooh. was uh, just very into being mysterious and scary. Like Mary when she killed that guy. Exactly. Uh, so she was actually the very first European film star to be, quote unquote, invited to Hollywood, which is a very uh, charitable yeah. way of putting that. <laughs> uh, indentured servitude or mob wars would probably be more appropriate. Well, potato, potato. Yeah. Well, she was extremely popular. And uh, she was also known to be a bit of a player. Um, she had a couple of marriages to some Europeans. But that didn't really dominate sort of the story of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she's better known for having relationships with Charlie Chaplin as well as a, a guy named Rod LaRock. Oh. Which, right? Like, I'm like, what was pornography in those <laughs> days? Uh, and then her sort of her longest lived uh, relationship or... I'm not entirely clear on when it started, mm-hmm. um, but she was Rudolph Valentino's lover until his death in 1926. And mm. she was introduced to him at a party at the San Simeon estate of William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. Ooh. Yeah, one of our favorite places in the world. Oh, man. They would have swimming in those pools. They were swimming in those. Although it says it was a costume party. Uh, well. So if it was around Halloween, they probably weren't because it's effing cold in California. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so after Valentino died, oh my god, okay, so Valentino <laughs> died, yeah. and she lost her shit at his funeral. Oh, man. Uh, basically, there's a, a uh, it's not, I mean, clearly it had to have happened because somebody would have seen it, but she bought a large floral arrangement that spelled Pola to be placed on Valentino's coffin. Wow. And like, they weren't married, I don't think they had any sort of legal uh-huh. connection. Yeah. Uh, and she was having like hysterics and fainted at the funeral. But for the rest of her life, Negri said that Valentino was the love of her life. Oh. Uh, yeah. and you know, I, I buy that. Why yeah. not? You know? He's, uh, you know, he's dreamy. Yeah, sure. Um, so she. Pat more liked him. <laughs> she sure did. Yeah. So her first marriage, uh, was in 1919 to Count Eugenius Domsky. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's fine. I don't make up these Polish names. It's Central Europe. What are you yeah. going to do? Uh, so they got married in 1919, but it didn't go well at all. She oh. did become a countess out of it, so that's cool. Oh, that's nice. But they um, were separated for a long time and then divorced in 1922. Mm. And I'm like, did they just immediately be like, oh, whoopsie. <laughs> um Eventually, she married a Georgian nobleman named Serge M. Devani. M. Devani? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, but the United States was very upset with her because she got married uh, in 1927, which was uh, less than a year after Rudolph Valentino's funeral, where uh, she had made such a, uh, a scene. Stink. Yeah. Um, and you know, and the press at the time did say, "Oh, this is just a publicity stunt." Mm. And again, it may have been, but I like. Listen, guys, I'm a big believer in being in love with randos forever. (laughs) (laughs) 
and saying really dramatic things like, oh, you know that dead guy? Love my life. <laughs> well, it's easy to have a dead guy be the love of your life. Well, that's true. He can't do anything to you anymore. Well, just like uh, Karagin and the Dowager, it was easy for him to have her as the love of his life. Yeah, exactly. It is precisely that same thing. Yeah. And then she also uh, was briefly involved with this guy named Russ Colombo when she uh, was working at the Ambassador Hotel in 1932. Was she working there? Oh. No. Oh, she was just living there and boning this guy. <laughs> Much better plan. What a time. Golden <laughs> age of Hollywood. Oh, wonderful. So she got her start in film. Uh, she actually was a dancer originally in Poland. She studied at Warsaw's Imperial Ballet Academy. And then she was forced to stop dancing when she got tuberculosis. Mm. Um, so after she got back from a sanatorium, uh, you know, the cure-all for yeah. tuberculosis, <laughs> at some point during her uh, convalescence, she changed her name to Pola Negri after the Italian novelist and poetess Ada Negri. Hmm. Her middle name was Apollonia. She was born Barbara Apollonia Chalopek. Hmm. So she just adopted... Pola as her first name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she was like, all right, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> so she... After, like Lady Gaga. Exactly. Actually, you know what? Honestly, she's a lot like Lady Gaga. Yeah. Um, just in a sense that she was very savvy about sort of building her brand mm-hmm. and like aligning herself with, you know, popular people and causes and stuff like that. Right, right. And then um, just kind of being batshit insane. <laughs> um, I assume Lady Gaga's batshit insane. I mean, she's worked hard to give us that impression. That's true. So she then auditioned after she had recovered from tuberculosis. She auditioned for the Warsaw Imperial Academy of Dramatic Arts, and she was a big deal there. Mm -hmm. She was a star pupil, and uh, her graduating performance of uh, The Wild Duck by Ibsen, she played Hedwig, uh, she got a ton of offers from uh, Warsaw theaters to, you know, perform with them. Right. And so she was very, very popular. And then did her film debut in 1914 in a film called Slave to Her Senses. And then she worked a lot with Ernst Lubitsch, Uh uh, was her primary director, while she um, moved to Berlin in 1917. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, and they don't really get into it here, but she became popular and started doing films during World War I. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So she, you know... Moved to Germany in 1917. There's no clear understanding of how that impacted yeah, her yeah. career. So he was producing comedies for the German film studio UFA. And then um, Negri first signed with a company called Saturn Films. And then she moved to UFA. Mm-hmm. And basically, Lubitsch was sort of her champion and, and, and got her the prominent roles that made her internationally popular. Um, the, the one that really put her on the map was Madame Dubari, which uh, was released in 1919 mm-hmm. and they renamed it Passion for the U.S. market. But what's mm. remarkable about that is that at the time uh, there was an American embargo on German films hmm. and basically launched this de- uh, a demand for German films. Like Germany was like nipping at Hollywood's heels in terms of being the number one film right. producer mm-hmm. in the world right and uh americans didn't like that <laughs> and uh 
So what they did instead of, uh, you know, starting World War II, since that was clearly already going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we've got that penciled in. This is the beginning of Hollywood buying out um, key talent from foreign markets. Mm. So they first uh, brought Lubitsch over and then they paid for Negri to come over and, and be a star. Yeah. And this is sort of the what led to this sort of... Uh, I wouldn't even call it an invasion, but like Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich are yeah. part of that same sort of, you know, system. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my favorite bit from Wikipedia at the time that she moved, which was 1922. The Hot Dog, a Cleveland monthly publication with its own, in its own promotional advertisement for Par- Paramount in February 1922, claimed Negri's true name was Paula Schwartz and that she was Jewish, although this is untrue. <laughs> I can't imagine why a Cleveland monthly publication called The Hot Dog <laughs> would feel the need to smear her in this way. Right. Uh, so she became extraordinarily popular and uh, very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. She lived in a uh, Los Angeles mansion modeled after the White House, which seems weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she was a, a fashion trendsetter, mm. um, not only in her hairstyle, but uh, painted red toenails, fur boots, and turbans. And fur boots persist to this day yeah so she was under contract to paramount and she worked for them basically up through 1928 and that's when she married her second husband Mm -hmm. and she got pregnant and she was like all right guys i'm just gonna peace out and go like be a mom or whatever right um but her retirement didn't last very long because she miscarried her pregnancy and then she learned that her husband was gambling away her fortune on speculative uh business ventures. Wikipedia says it strained their relationship. <laughs> and I'm like, did he ever stop? Right. Like I would think that would strain your relationship. Yeah. Anyway, so she um she did go back to acting uh with a uh, British film production company. She wound up going back to Hollywood in 1931 uh to do her first talking film which did not go well for her. Uh, you know, like many of the silent right, stars right. just talkies didn't work for her, but she did sing a song called Paradise which was the centerpiece of the film basically and then became a huge hit in terms of the sheet music mm. and it was sort of a, a what they refer to as a minor standard, you know. Uh-huh, uh, gotcha. Louis Prima performed it, you know. It sure. was it was around for a yeah. while. It was the all about that base of the of the <laughs> moment. Um, so she then moved back to Germany in the mid thirties, and she signed back on to UFA in about nineteen thirty six, uh, which was now controlled by Joseph uh, Goebbels. Right, Goebbels. Goebbels. I think. I can't pronounce anything in German, guys. It's it's, it's a, look, really it's a hard. challenge. So. Goebbels had bought out UFA and uh, she had no problem working for him until she was living in Paris. And basically, once the Nazis took over in France, Negri didn't like that and then just like was like, peace out. I'm going back to the United States where they don't have fascism. She's like, listen, Nazis are fine in Germany, but outside of Germany, no. So she then lived off of selling her jewelry, basically. And it wasn't until like 1943 that she was in another movie. Mm-hmm. And then like that movie was called High Diddle Diddle. And she was a <laughs> temperamental opera singer. <laughs> and then she was basically typecast as that like for a really long time. But wow. she turned down all those roles because they were derivative. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what else is derivative? Being a has-been. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but then she, you know, got a booking agent who put her on a vaudeville tour. Which wow. Is weird. Um, oh, that was the, you know, that's, that's the, uh, that's the celebrity big brother of the day. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, so one of my favorite things that happened, so I think she divorced her second husband, although, oh wait, yeah, okay, they divorced on the 2nd of April, 1931. Okay. So that marriage lasted like four years. Right. Uh, so she was super good at marriage. <laughs> But, uh, when she came back to the States, she, uh, befriended this woman named Margaret West, who was an oil heiress and vaudeville actress, and she had met her in the 30s, and they became housemates. They moved from Los Angeles to San Antonio, Texas, and they lived out the remainder of their days together. Wow. Laverne and Shirley style, and or Grey Garden style, however (laughs) you want to characterize it. Yeah. Uh, Margaret West died first. In 1963. Mm-hmm. At that point, Wes moved out of the home that they had shared and moved into this townhouse. And then she came out of retirement and was in a Disney movie called The Moon Spinners uh, oh. featuring Haley Mills and Eli Wallach. Huh. And she, there was always interest in her mm-hmm. up until her death in 1987. She just like didn't give a shit wow. about doing anything. Huh. Um, but so she died in 1987 at the age of 90. Yeah. And uh, her official cause of death was pneumonia, but she also had a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't treating that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she, for some reason, left all of her money to St. Mary's University in Texas. Uh, including uh, a bunch of memorabilia and some prints of her films. They also gave a large portion of her estate to the Polish nuns of the Seraphic Order. Uh, so, sure. Yeah. It's just, it's a very weird life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's Pola Negri, everybody. There you, you go. Know, she was a pioneer in the art of being a crazy movie star. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. Oh, sure. All I right. mean, you know, Mary Pickford did a decent job. <laughs> that was all right. There's no Pola Negri. Oh, true. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. So back in their cottage, Anna asks Bates why she would want, quote, such a thing. Uh, and he says it's to avoid bearing his child. Anna says that's all she's ever dreamed of. But Bates says, no, she doesn't want it now because she thinks that Bates is a murderer. Anna asks what he means. Since they know how Vera died, she committed suicide by pie. Uh, also, murdering skips a generation. It's <laughs> a good point. Uh, but he says, not Vera, Green. And Anna starts crying, asking how long he knew. Right? I forgot that they have never discussed this. Right. Uh, he says since the first day he heard it happened, Anna says he may have suspected, but he didn't know. But he says he did know when Green came back and said that he went down to the kitchens during that concert. Anna says that she had kept telling herself that Bates didn't know, so it couldn't have been Bates uh, that killed him. Bates says that he wanted to kill Green, and he was going to, and he went to York, and he bought a London ticket, and he got on the platform, but he never got on the train. Uh, he says that he knew if he saw Green, he would kill him, and if he did that, he would hang, and he couldn't do that to Anna. Then he says the next day, when he heard that Green was dead anyway, it was In like... In a coincidence so staggering that I am angry. Agreed. Uh... So he said he kept the ticket like a talisman because the fact that it was untorn proved that he never traveled or that he bought two tickets. Uh, Anna says, so that's why he was angry when she gave the codes to Hughes, uh, blah, blah, blah. But she says she's happy because Bates is innocent. She'd been so afraid and she couldn't tell him why. And now she's happy. I mean, I would rather hear that he had killed him, but also had retained some sort of proof of his innocence. Right. I don't know. Well, and I also note how elegantly they shift the topic 
from new and interesting territory back to the <laughs> same old murder prison topic. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I was like, oh, let's hear about their differing views on childbirth or something. But nope. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So does she ever even explain that that was Lady Mary's? Uh, not. I don't believe so. Not oh in this my episode. God. Yeah. Yep. Moving on. <laughs> In the servants' hall, Daisy's studying, and Molesley walks in and asks what she makes of Lady Mary's hair, which, who gives a shit? Well, first of all, who gives a shit? And second of all, Daisy... You know Daisy's not allowed upstairs. (laughs) Right. She's never seen it. Anyway, she says that she hopes Mary comes down to show them, which, why would she? Yeah. That is really not a Mary thing to do. It really isn't. She wouldn't know where to find them. She says that the homely liberal loved the new hairstyles and that they were setting women free, which is true because maintaining long hair is a pain in the ass, even in this modern time. (laughs) Mosley says that he's sorry that she's gone. And Daisy says that the homely liberal gave her confidence uh, and told her how sharp she was. Yeah. And Mosley agrees. Daisy says it's harder to believe on her own. And Mosley asks if he can help, not with math, but he knows a bit about history. Daisy asks how old he was when he left school, and he says 12. Uh, he was quite bright, but his dad thought he could be a teacher. Uh, but unfortunately, they couldn't afford to keep him in school. His mother got ill, so Mosley had to start earning. And Daisy suggests that he take matric now. But Mosley says he's missed it, and he'd like to help Daisy to make sure somebody gets away. Daisy correctly remains unsure. Yeah. What does matric mean? I could not really tell, because when you search it, you find all this other stuff, much of it modern day or whatever. That's I unfortunate. Mean, it's some, it you know, like obviously... Some sort of exam right like a like a university level you would think right or you know continuing education of some variety like maybe I don't, that's the equivalent of your ged maybe so that would make sense i like daisy i do too i like it when she's having fun yeah yeah in the downstairs hall anna asks hughes about that coat did she find a ticket in it etc moving on <laughs> yeah it's really pointless as yeah. a scene at last the long-vaunted point-to-point. Hooray! Rich people, horses, kids, gambling, meat pies. Yeah. They've got it all. They've got it all. Uh, horses right up to the finish line, and Lord Grantham is watching from their tent with binoculars. And uh, Lord Grantham tells Blake he's very brave. Again, what is so dangerous about this shit? I yeah. don't understand. Well, this is... I mean, there is an element of danger to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if your horse misses a jump or something, like... You could you certainly get injured and even conceivably get killed. Yeah, but nobody ever talked about that when they went on their stupid fox hunts. That's true. And they had guns at that. They had guns and was, you know, it was not like carefully prepared terrain either. Right? Anyway, yeah. I remain completely baffled by this whole point to point business. Well, sure. Uh, Blake says that he was petrified. He doesn't even know the horse he's using. Rose asks how long the race is. Gilly says it's three miles. Maybelline Fox stops by just to say hi. (laughs) And Gilly asks what she's doing. And she's like, duh, I'm riding in the race, you simpleton. Yeah. Gilly kisses her on the cheek. Lord Grantham asks to be introduced, which Gilly does. (laughs) Lord Grantham internally is like, you seem much more on the bull than my daughter. Uh, Blake asks where she's staying. She's staying with the Middlesons or whatever, but they're away that night, so she'll head back to London after the race. Blake says it sounds exhausting, and McGee invites her to stay with them in what is clearly a clever ruse. Yeah. The Dowager Countess asks if she's brought enough clothes, and Mabel Lane Fox says she thinks so, and Blake says he knows so. Yeah. I just want, like, their friendship, you mm-hmm. know? They're like if when Harry met Sally if they never got together again. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I want that sitcom. <laughs> Fox and Blake. Yeah. Uh, I'm the down. Fox and the Blake. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's yeah. it. Yeah. 
Uh, Mary and Atticus walk up. Lord Grantham asks where she's been. And she says that the Aldridges let her change at their house. And uh, Lord well, Grantham... Yeah, he says, I admire you, which I guess he's saying to Atticus, but I don't know why. I think it's because he's riding in the event. I guess so, yeah. Anyway, because Atticus says it would be a poor show not to ride at his own event, and Rose agrees and promises to cheer him on, Lord Grantham asks Mary when she decided to ride, and she said it was when she was getting her hair cut. Lord Grantham uh, asks what horse she'll use, and she says Stephen rode trumpeter over this morning. This so, is, trumpeter then. This is like a really tedious scene. Yeah, actually. it is. Um, Gilly asks Maybelline Fox if she is stalking him. Which I was like, is that, it seems like kind of an anachronistic use of that Maybe phrase. Maybe not. I mean, but I mean he, he might be using it in the more like literal hu- metaphorical sense of like hunting. Right. Which, fair enough. Maybelline Fox says she'll ignore that because she'd hate to think in vain. <laughs> uh, but Gilly says she knows how to surprise. She takes it as a compliment and goes to say hi to Blake. Uh, aside, Blake tells Mabel Lane Fox she's gotten things rolling. She asks what he would have done if McGee hadn't invited Mabel Lane Fox to stay. And he says he'd have suggested it himself. Yeah. And here's what I, here's what I'm struck by. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, Mabel Lane Fox is amazing. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. But like, Mabel Lane Fox outstrips Gilly so much, but they do seem very like well matched. That's true. He seems like the type who wants to just sit around and adore her while she goes around and does whatever it is that she does. Right. Much like you, Poindexter. Exactly. Very true. Um, Whereas, and, then, and, see, and, it, and it makes sense, too, because Mary thinks that she wants that, mm-hmm. but she doesn't. No. Because she doesn't actually have enough to do. Mary to be able, likes arguing. Yeah, she likes arguing. She needs her husband to be active to keep her occupied. Uh-huh. Well, no, because she's the gilly. Right. In this analogy with mm-hmm. blake because mm-hmm. blake and mabel lane fox have a much more acquisitive approach well it's you know i mean it's town mouse and country mouse to yeah, an extent that's true no but i just but i think it's also the changing times yeah. like they're so aggressive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean like in the, the courtships that we've seen you know even with like sir richard carlisle and other people and you know he was older and, right, and it right, was right. a slightly different situation but it's like it was still bound by these very like old courtship things. And it's like, oh, well, like it will work out or it won't work out. But mm-hmm. these two are very, very uh, passionate about getting what they want yeah. because they want it, not because it's appropriate. Right. And I don't even feel like I'm articulating this as well as I could be. But they're, you know, they're very fast. They are very fast. And go ahead. Other question. Well, I'm sorry, were you going to finish something about that? Okay. Maybelline Fox seems like she puts out, right? I mean, she seems she that way. She really seems like she's putting out. Right. And I am therefore really curious if she and Tony have done anything. Right. And if so, then why would Tony be so insane about <laughs> Mary being like, oh, little Gilly wasn't quite doing it for me. Let's not get married. Right. Well, I think it, and it, it, it seems... goes back to remember when Blake said that Mary could soften the blow by saying she was leaving Gilly for Blake right. rather than just leaving him. Yes. Because that, you know, to an extent, maybe that's it, that Gilly wasn't just dumping Maybelline Fox. He was leaving her for his new true love. Right. And so he sort of forgave himself in that sense. That's also very possible. I mean, people will justify just oh, about sure. anything for their own sexual activities or preferences sure and i say that free of judgment that's just how humans work right right um but again i just i'm very curious about her yeah if and what she does she also seems like the type who'll blow you 
to like get you on the hook. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And but I mean, I'm I'm also just you know I guess we're not quite up to the bright young things yet, are we? Or have we passed them? Uh, no, I think that's about now. I mean, because that's post-war, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm just I'm very curious what the the sexual mores is. It mores or mores? I think it's mores, but I always say mores. So yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> attitudes. Yeah, we'll say attitudes, which everyone knows how to pronounce. <laughs> I just wonder what their sexual attitudes were because I think when you get into a situation. Okay, it's weird because it has the opposite effect after World War II, mm. where everybody was like, "Oh my God, we have to get married and have babies." Yeah, yeah. But at the end of World War One, everything seemed so utterly pointless mm-hmm. that it seems like everybody was just like, you know, whatever. Let's just be very sexually free. Yeah. And this is even coming off the tail end of a relatively sexually free period of the monarchy. Sure, sure. So, I mean, it make I, and that probably has more to do with it than anything. Yeah, is that, that makes a lot of sense. You've already laid the groundwork and been like, well, you know, you get married, you have these kids and make sure that their paternity can't be questioned. And then, you know, do whatever you want. Right. Don't be, you know, making a scene about it, but like, have your thing. Yeah. And then, but then you get this younger generation who saw the older generation get completely decimated and mm-hmm. they're like, ah, uh, let's just have a rainbow party or whatever. <laughs> but then... To bring it back to Mabel Lane Fox right. and Charles Blake, they are of that generation that got decimated. Yeah. And what effect does that have on you? Right. Um, anyway, Neem, uh, Baron Fellows, even Alistair Bruce, if you're listening, <laughs> super curious. What's the deal with Mabel Lane Fox? Yeah. More Mabel Lane Fox. All the La- Mabel Lane Fox. Yeah. I wish she'd marry Branson. (laughs) God, that would be great. She'd just slap him and say, listen, be a socialist or whatever, but make a goddamn decision. I'm going riding. And I don't mean on a horse. (laughs) Waka waka. True. Uh, yeah, that sounds She's great. like if the homely liberal didn't suck somehow. It's, well, she is. I mean, I doubt she's that liberal, but she's at least acts. No, I mean, you know, she's. She acts like a liberal, which the homely liberal never did. Yeah. You know, except in terms of her political speeches. The homely liberal was like the person equivalent of gruel. (laughs) Fair enough. Anyway, we got more to get through here. Edith sits in the library, writing a letter and sighing. Branson comes in and he's surprised. She thought he'd gone with the others, but he says he's got work to do and it's not really his thing. She asks if he's going out. He says, no, he's got some things to do around the house. And Edith is like, so I'm going away. And Branson's like, I didn't know that. And she says she hasn't told anyone. Branson says that he doesn't understand. She says he doesn't have to, but tell the others that her mind was made up and she wasn't hysterical or anything, which is true, but not that she seems to be like super Yeah, she's a bit glassy-eyed. She is a little bit. Branson asks her to wait and talk to them, but she says he's the only one that she would talk to if she was going to, but she's not. (laughs) She says that Branson is a fine man and not to let them flatten that out of him. Branson asks where she's going. Can he drive her somewhere? She says, nope, she's taking a car to the station and she'll leave the keys with the station master. And she can't stay there if she's ever going to be happy. And she kisses him on the cheek and walks off. So uh, there's some doings a transpiring. Yeah, here. bold moves by Edith. Uh, speaking of which, in the very next scene <laughs> at Pig Farm, Marigold is sleeping as Mrs. Pigman says that Edith must be mad. Edith says, "Tell her to Pigman," who says it's true. Marigold is Edith's daughter. Mrs. Pigman refuses to believe it. She says she doesn't know what Edith has on Pigman, but she can't get away with this. 
Edith says she has a copy of Marigold's birth certificate, and it's in French, but it has her name on it. Pigman says that was brave, and I'm like, shut up, Pigman! You yeah. are not helping anybody. Yeah. You've already, you've done enough. And by enough, we mean very little. Right. Uh, Edith says Rosamond wanted her to use a false name, but she didn't because she knew that she would be stealing that baby one of these days. <laughs> Mrs. Pigman asks to see the birth certificate and tears it up, but Edith says she has others. Mrs. Pigman says that Edith and Pigman have cooked this up, but Pigman says they don't have anything that gives them a claim on Marigold. Mrs. Pigman says that they have a note from her dying father, and Pigman says he wrote that. And I'm like, Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. How do you not know your husband's own handwriting? Like, even in a false hand. Right. I'm skeptical. I am as well. Uh, so, Mrs. Pigman is weeping. Yeah. And says, how could you do this? I am your wife, yet you have lied and cheated and used me shamefully. Here, here. Absolutely. Yeah. She says he couldn't have been more false if he had taken a mistress, which is true. Yeah. Like, absolutely. We've been saying this all along. Mm-hmm. Team Pig, Mrs. Pigman. Right. Sorry. Freudian slip. <laughs> uh, anyway, Edith says she's very grateful. Mrs. Pigman doesn't want to hear it. Uh, neither do we. Right. And Pigman says to fetch Marigold's things. Mrs. Pigman refuses. Edith says, uh, yeah, fine, don't. I'm rich. Yeah. I'll buy her all new stuff. Yeah. She goes to pick up Marigold, and Pigman restrains Mrs. Pigman, who then asks Edith to wait. <sighs> yeah. Okay, guys, this yeah. is where shit gets real. Yeah. She picks up a teddy bear and gives it to Edith and says she won't sleep else. Yeah. And I'm like, at this point, you should say, oh, do you have any other tips? I know oh, absolutely nothing <laughs> about babies. Uh, she strokes Marigold's head, tells her not to be afraid, and that Edith is her new mummy, and she loves her, but don't forget that they love her too, and miss- kisses Marigold. And she turns away, and Edith heads out. <sighs> Poor Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. Also, poor Marigold. There's a bunch of people being like, oh, remember me. Yeah. And you know people don't remember stuff before they're three. Yeah. Oh, Mrs. Pigman. No, man. It sucks. Yeah. Uh, it was really... It's just not okay to steal a baby. It's not. And we've got, you know, we've gotten some feedback that we're being too hard on Edith. Right. And look, I mean, we have some sympathy for her, but, you know, you have to shit or get off the pot when it comes to baby stealing. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know... She's stolen it twice. Yeah. Which demonstrates a really severe lack of regard for the child's well-being. Yeah. As well as the respect and trust of these other adults who selflessly offered to help you out of a situation that you got yourself into. Yeah. Yeah. That you are too cowardly to take ownership of. Right. And it's just fucking terrible. It is. Uh, however, Marigold continues to not have any facial expressions and basically look like Gracie Bell from Friday Night Lights <laughs> with her big fat alien head. Yeah. She so seems, maybe she's fine. She seems unfazed by all this. <laughs> well, she's already, you know, you get stolen once. You're like, <laughs> this again. I guess. Where's I'm, my cigarettes? Come I, on, Teddy. I guess sometimes you just get stolen from your parents. So that's a thing. Yeah. I'll plan on that. So back at the Jolly Picnic, <laughs> Atticus asked Mary not to let him fall in front of Rose. I think he was actually asking God. Well, fair enough. Because Mary can't help him. <laughs> no, that's Nor a good point. would she help him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in any case, Mary is glad that Rose's opinion matters to Atticus, and Atticus says he'd rather not look like a fool just yet. She can discover it gently. I am such a huge fan of Atticus. Yeah. He is a good egg, and he we is. like him very much. We do. What are, what's their portmanteau? Adderose. Adderose. Rosicus. I guess Rosicus. Nah. Sorry. Neither are good options. Rosticus. That's almost too much of another phrase. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Mary goes to get on Trumpeter and tells Maybelline Fox that she is dying to ride astride as Which Maybelline, Maybelline Fox is. Yeah. Maybelline, also, Maybelline Fox's uh, riding tweeds, hella better than Mary's riding tweeds. Yeah, they really are. And Maybelline Fox's hair is amazing. It's yeah. like this intricate braid thing, and she doesn't look frumpy at all. No, she so does she's not. she's clearly got a better maid. <laughs> yes. Uh, but Mary says that she cannot ride astride while the Dowager Countess is watching. Maybelline Fox is surprised. She thinks Mary is more than capable of breaking rules when she wants to. But Mary says not to be spiky. Which is rich coming from her. Yeah. She says they both want the same thing, which is for Maybelline Fox and Gilly to get together. Maybelline Fox says that she resents Mary, rightly so, and Mary's ability to take Gilly away when Maybelline Fox knows that she herself loves Gilly more. And can make him happy. That's right. Mary says that that's true. Maybelline Fox says that in that case, why have you shown up looking like a cross between a Vogue fashion plate and a case of dynamite? Mary says she can't make it too easy for Gilly, and Maybelline Fox laughs. Game recognized game. That's true. Also, Maybelline Fox, don't play dumb. You know she's also (laughs) trying to, like, hook up with Blake. Yeah. So, but, you know, whatever. This was... This was so great. Yeah, it was. I enjoyed this so much. Mm-hmm. I just, I, w- I was having a conversation on my personal Facebook page <laughs> about how much I love Mabel Lane Fox <laughs> and how great she and Mary are together. Somebody's shipping them, but I'm like, no, Mary's not good enough for Mabel Lane Fox. <laughs> she does not deserve her. Right. Only I deserve Mabel Lane Fox. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it just wouldn't work. Oh, no. It's just, you know. Yeah. They're like two positively charged ions. Yeah. You know, they can be in the same room for like five minutes (laughs) before a bitch gets her hair pulled. Uh, Lord Grantham is holding Sibby as a nanny holds George, and Lord Grantham is watching uh, the point-to-point through binoculars. Sibby asks, can I have a look, donk? And we all died of cuteness. Get your shit together, George. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't terrible in this scene, but just, you know. Yeah. Oh, compare. God. Yeah. Clearly. This is like the baby Olivier <laughs> we're dealing with here. Uh, Lord Gretham holds the binoculars to her face, asks if she can see Aunt Mary, and mm-hmm. she says she can, and it is a very pointless but cute scene. Yes, it is. Donk. <laughs> McGee, the Dowager, and Isabel watch Mary riding. Isabel thinks that she looks splendid. The Dowager thinks that she's cracked. <laughs> she cracked a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Isabel says it's good to do some crazy things when you're young. Isn't Mary like 40? Uh, right. (laughs) Well, she's younger than Isabel. That's also true. McGee says as long as you survive them. Which is a very, I think I take the McGee middle way on this. Yeah, yeah. The Dowager says that some people do crazy things their whole life. And as McGee walks away, she asks Isabel what Isabel told Mertie. She says she's going to tell everyone when they're all together and ask the Dowager not to give her away. The Dowager's like, aha, so that means you said yes? And Isabel says yes, and she feels it's her last chance of a new adventure before she's done. The Dowager says that now that she has accepted him, she will hear no argument from the Dowager, but the Dowager looks troubled. Very troubled. Yeah. Horses right up to the start, and Rose pushes her way to the front of the audience, uh, really upsetting this woman in an ugly, ugly hat. <laughs> Some old guy gives a thumbs up, the flag is dropped, and they're off! Various shots of galloping, Mary pulls ahead of Blake, Gilly pulls up by Mabel Lane Fox. The horses cross the finish, and Blake tells Mary she might have let Mabel Lane Fox be the first woman, but Mary doesn't believe in letting people win. 
which Maybelline Fox wouldn't either. Right. Maybelline so, Fox yeah. would not appreciate that. Uh, Gilly and Maybelline Fox walk by. Gilly says that she did well. She says she's just happy to finish the race. And he says, you're a positive centaur. And I'm like, see, this is what Maybelline Fox wants. And this is what you want to do, Gilly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to give her hella compliments. And then she's like, no, stop. But really don't stop. <laughs> Blake says that Gilly's nearly there if Mary would just stop jerking his lead. He is rather horse-like. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham congratulates them and says he's glad they're all in one piece. Some people walk up and Atticus introduces them as his parents. Lady Cinderby says it's lovely to see Rose and invites them all to bathe and change at their house. Gilly says he'll wait and do it back at Downton. Lady Cinderby asks McGee if they can stay for dinner. Uh, but McGee says they're covered in dust but invites them over to Downton the following day. Lord Cinderby says it's an imposition. McGee says not at all. So they do that whole thing. Right. <laughs> uh, McGee introduces Isabel and the Dowager Countess. The Dowager Countess says to Isabel that she thinks uh, things between Rose and Atticus must be much more advanced than she realized if the parents are coming for dinner. Isabel says he seems like a nice boy, and it's not like the Catholics. Rose won't have to convert. Mm-hmm. Surprising everyone, including <laughs> the Dowager Countess, who says convert to what? Oh, wait. No, we knew that we they, knew were they, they were Jewish. We knew they were Jewish, yeah. Just surprising the Dowager. Yes. Sorry. I fr- God, I can't explain how much I don't retain episode to episode. <laughs> like, that- I don't even know what happens in the future of this series. No, I and know. And we have seen the whole thing. We have. Anyway, the Dowager surprised and says, convert to what? And Isabel says she read that Lord Cinderby is a leading figure in the Jewish community. And the Dowager Countess says, there's always something. Which is a bit... A bit much. Yeah. Like, you know, McGee's Jewish. Right. Shouldn't you kind of be over this particular social issue? Yeah. Like, if it wasn't for that, then maybe that would make sense for a thing for her to say. Like, and never but... forget, like, McGee's, you know, Jewish heritage saved your entire estate and title. Yep. So maybe step off the snobbery. Mm-hmm. And now the Cinderbees, as you know, uh, could be the ones to save the McClare situation. Yeah, absolutely. So... Shrimpy's had to sell his beard. (laughs) (laughs) Back at Downton, Branson is explaining to everybody how Edith left. He says he doesn't know where, but he doubts it's to Rosamond, which, I mean, duh. Yeah. Who would go to Rosamond? Well, most of them. That's true. But they're not trying to run away. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Lord Grantham asks why she would run off. Dowager goes over to Carson and says that she is going to slip away. And he says that that's fine. They're just unloading the car now. And she says she can manage. Were Gilly and uh, Blake and Maybelline Fox in the library when they were all talking about this? I wasn't paying attention, but I feel like not. I feel like not as well. But I mean, you know, they all arrived separately at the point to point. So they would have, you know, made their own way back. Yeah, that's true. And it would make sense that you would let the family, you know, go first and like chill out for a minute uh except out front anna's telling thomas where to take some luggage as the dowager countess walks out and asks the chauffeur to take her home but to stop at pig farm first because anna as she's pointing out the luggage she's saying those are lady mary's riding clothes these are mislaid right foxes. you're right yeah. so i mean my assumption is that they've you know gone up to you know their guest room or whatever fair enough you know yeah. and they aren't meddling in the family's private affairs yeah but. makes sense makes sense in hughes's parlor carson comes in and says that edith is gone Hughes says that, well, it must have been that news about Gregson, which is the only thing they could think of. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Carson says he should go ring the gong, but then asked if he could make a strange suggestion. Hughes says that she's all agog. For fuck's sake. 
Carson asked if they should invest in a property together. He was thinking that if Patmore could, then they could too, and have something to retire on. Hughes is flustered by this and says to go and ring the gong. Mm -hmm. Ring my gong. (laughs) Ring my gong. The Dowager Countess comes back to Pig Farm and asks if the birds have flown, uh, inspiring the Beatles song, Surely. (laughs) And he says he won't say anything to anyone, nor will Mrs. Pigman, who looks fucking wrecked. Yeah. Like, I was so sad for her. Yeah. It made me very upset. Yeah. She looks like Tilda Swinton without all of the, like, you know, joie de vie. (laughs) The Dowager Countess asks if they know where Edith went. They don't. The Dowager thanks them and leaves, saying she doesn't want to take up any more of their valuable time. Yes. And she's visibly uncomfortable having to talk to this tenant. Yeah. But she tries to be as, like, polite as possible. Right, right. In London, as we established by seeing a double-decker bus go by. With an advertisement for Oki's Wellington Knife Polish. (laughs) Knife Polish. Let the people you stab know you care. (laughs) 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 We see Edith entering a hotel room. The bellhop says they'll send up a cot, then stands there until Edith remembers to tip him. Uh, Edith tells Marigold that they're together, and it's not ideal, but they should celebrate. She'll order ice cream and a glass of champagne, and something for myself, too, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be as jolly as you like. And Marigold does not really seem like the jolly type. No, unfortunately, terminal bummerism does not skip a generation (laughs) like being a murderer does. So I think uh, Marigold is uh, set up for a life of anguish. Uh, yeah, another corker of an episode, guys. Yep, Things yep. are happening. People are doing stuff. Mabel Lane Fox keeps being around. Mm-hmm. If this keeps up, yeah, this could be our best season since season two. It could easily be. It's it's you know, I mean, Edith is at least doing something proactive. Proactive, yeah. yeah. Even though we morally object to it, right? Which we do, but. You know, given that this is clearly going to happen at some point, I'm glad it's finally happened. Yeah, so now hopefully we can all move on. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that brings us to the Abbey Awards. Mm-hmm. First up, we have Worst Decision. And that goes to Mr. Bates. Mm-hmm. For just being kind of a jerk, I guess. Well, it's just, you know, <laughs> the correct thing to do when you find a diaphragm and a copy of Mari Stopes's book is not to say, hey, how come you hate me and my babies? <laughs> Right. It's to say, hey, I found this. Uh, I am listening without judgment to find out why these are in our home. Right. It's basically the same thing. It's all about tone. Yeah. It was a decision in tone. Yeah. Just give the person a chance to give the person a chance to respond. Yeah. Before you judge them. Exactly. Yeah. God, it's not hard. I agree. Next up, we have best evasion. This goes to. For never being around. Yeah. Good job, Madge. Or maybe not. Well, you know what? She can't be doing that great of a job on all the work. Well, uh, but I'll say this. She just had a lot of time open up in her schedule. She sure did. No. Oh, Madge, put your feet up. (laughs) No, she didn't. She's going to have to fucking take care of Mabel Lane Fox. Well, you know. Well, immediately. Yeah, for a day or two. Next up, we have Worst Overbite. Well, I'm sure Maybelline Fox is easier to take care of, you know. She knows what she wants. She'll just tell you. That's a good point. Next up, we have Worst Overbite. And that goes to the Dowager Countess. Mm-hmm. A bit of an unusual move, but uh-huh. she was very, uh... She was season one levels of overbitey this episode. Yeah. She, uh, you know, the her, you know, last thing about the Jewishness being, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just her opinion about Murdabelle. 
Yeah, and then also just sort of the way she treated Prince Karagan was pretty overbitey. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So uh, get that checked. <laughs> right. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. Uh, Lady Mary and a startling upset. Yeah. Maybe they have been deliberately making her look frumpy this season. Maybe so for her makeover. Yeah, but yeah. the haircut alone would yeah. have done it because it looks stunning. Yeah. Uh, and she also looks great in her writing tweeds. The outfit she wears, the dress she's in when she reveals the haircut is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Was uh, that? I remember there was one she was wearing that was a black... Almost had kind of a kimono feel to it. It had these two little beads on it. Yes. I think that's what she wore to get the haircut. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. So she's looking great. Yeah. Keep it up, Mary. We like giving you that award. Yeah. And I mean, when looking good is a plot point in the episode, that really, you got to give you the Yeah, edge you really there. do have to make that uh, effort. Yeah. Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. <laughs> And that goes to Edith. Yeah. She was a, a hot contender for worst decision. Right. But, like, somehow that was, like, a less bad decision than what Bates did. Right. Like, at least it well, is her baby. Yeah. I mean, you know, Edith is, in a sense, just, like, this is just the consequences of previous bad decisions yeah. that have all come. Versus a new bad decision. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, but her clothes this episode, yeah. she had a mustard yellow thing in the first scene that I liked all right. Oh, yeah. Right. But then um, she's wearing, I think when she decides to leave, she's yeah. wearing this heinous navy blue abomination. Right. With like Did sheer she... sleeves and a bunch of like embroidery on the front. Right. That just makes it look like she spilled stuff down the front of her yeah, dress. That like, looks just, terrible. Yeah. And her faux morning dinner outfit right. was terrible. Just... Not not a good episode for Edith clothes wise, but no. she was under a lot of stress. Well, so she was. It's- well, and with Madge being so busy, right? That's a good point. <laughs> Next up, we have cutest baby. Uh, we've got it for Sibby, guys. Yeah, third week in a row. I mean, she's got it's a real become like not even a contest. Right, she's like the Michael Jordan of baby cuteness on this yeah, show. Absolutely, God, Donk, you're killing me. Yeah, you're killing me with the cuteness. It's yeah. amazing. And finally. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. Right. And we're going with a two on this, this one. Was, yeah, this was not a strong episode. Although the facial expressions alone, I think, are what keep it from being a one. Right. I mean, she had that going. You know, and again, it was partly just the attitudes that were, you know, scripted for this time. We don't like, you know, which is Yeah, but definitely... even more than that, it just felt like she was in such reactive mode. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even the ways that she was reacting. It was just that... Or yeah, like with this whole Spratt and Denker thing, you know, yeah, she doesn't like, shut lay that down. down. Any, yeah, this, these are your employees. You're in charge of Spratt. Yeah. He's not the boss of you. That's right. Ridiculous. Well, we'll see. Obviously, the Denker-Spratt drama is going to be continuing. Yeah, so. I wonder what's going to happen to the small clothes. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we will bid you adieu until our next podcast. Mm-hmm. Until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. Mm-hmm.